To you, Ming the Merciless, ruler of the universe, take this earthling, Dale Arden, to be your empress of the hour. Of the hour, yes. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not. Hey, movie fans, welcome to another episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. I am your host, Troy, and with me, as always, is Brad. Brad, we're in the middle of December. How's it going so far? We're, we're almost to the end of 2020. Thank God. Hey, Troy, I have been spending a lot of time in Night City, and I know you have too. So if I seem like I'm uh, spaced out a little bit, it's because I'm thinking about cyberpunk. So forgive uh, me. Yeah, I've been, I've been playing a lot. I unfortunately sat down, I think it was Saturday night. Uh, the wife was doing some grad work and I thought, you know what, I'll play for a couple hours. And it was about eight o'clock at night. And lo and behold, I'm like, well, you know, I put a couple hours in and I looked at my watch because I was at a stopping point, 2.30 a.m. How the heck did that happen? I don't know. But hey, Brett, I've been excited all day. We delayed the recording. We usually record on a Sunday. It's Monday night. I've been super excited about this week's show, not just the film that you picked, as part of our best of 2020, but simply because we've got somebody from one of my favorite podcasts that I just discovered. So with us tonight from the VHS Files podcast is none other than one of the main hosts, Josh. Josh, welcome to Not A Bomb Podcast. How are you this evening? Not A Bomb Podcast. I'm happy to be here, guys. Um, I just, uh, this is so funny how this came about just through emails. It's like, hey, I got a podcast. You got a podcast. You want to do something? And we've just been corresponding ever since. Uh, so word of mouth stuff like that and just uh, discovering you guys how I did. It's just worked out and I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk about movies with you guys. Yeah, I was Josh, so- is a, Josh is a big fan of Coneheads. Is that correct? Coneheads is the best Saturday Night Live movie that nobody cared about. <laughs> I agree with you. 100%. I mean, I could go into all kinds of details of why I'm a big Mike Myers fan. I'm a big uh, Wayne's world fan, but something about Conehedge just resonates more with me. Like I can quote every line in Wayne's world, but, and I, and I might not be able to do that with Coneheads, but something about Coneheads just holds, holds true in my heart. Like I, I, there's just something about that movie that gets me and I, I can't help but laugh every time I watch it. I agree. I'm, I was surprised when we did that for the second episode, how many times I watched it that week mm-hmm. and how watchable in front of a film it is. But tell us about VH. So I'm really curious about your podcast in terms of how this came about. The title is VHS Files Podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm right in the middle of the Gremlins episode because this month you're doing a lot of Christmas themed movies. Yeah. But you do you do a lot of older stuff. And so far, your your 80s have been like your biggest wheelhouse. Right. So yeah. h- how did how did this podcast come together? Because there's a group of you on this show. 
Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's all, it's my wife, uh, Jenny Lou, who's on with us and my buddy, Eric, who lives here in, in Florida where I am at. And my, one of my really good friends, Jason, he lives in Texas and we all just have a mutual love for movies and talking about movies and what's good about them and what's funny and what's terrible. And, you know, 2020 kind of got, <laughs> got hold of us early on and things just started to get sour as far as, you know, being able to go out with your friends and, and hang and, and talk about movies and, and, you know, just come over to the house. Even it's just, you're in quarantine. So you got to find ways to make, make quarantine tolerable. So I'd been talking about doing a podcast for a long time. Me and Eric, who were on the uh, podcast together, he's, he's one of our other hosts. He um, actually had me be on one of a, a very early version of a podcast he wanted to do called Yak Flicks. And uh, it never really went anywhere. Um, I don't, we just, at that time, it wasn't something like, hey, we could do this. It was sort of a, oh, let's try it. And it didn't really go anywhere. Um, but this time it was like, hey, we got nothing better to do right now. We've got the capabilities. We've got the technology. Let's let's make this happen. And even with one of our co-hosts being all the way in Texas, we make it happen every week. Um, haven't missed an episode yet, and we're trying to hold on to that. It's been tough right now because I'm in the middle of getting ready to move to uh, Georgia and, uh, but I'm, I'm muscling through it. I'm doing guest spots on podcasts and my podcasts. So. Yeah. I was going to say you're, you're doing like a film of the week, but you've also been inserting a couple of just sideshows where you do like the horror section. And, and yeah. one of my favorites was phantasm. Cause I love that film and you and Jason just really hit all of the things that make that film work. Yeah. I, I've got this question. So I've been dying to ask this all day. Your the title of your podcast is VHS files podcast. Mm -hmm. How many VHS tapes do you actually own? <laughs> if you would have gotten me back in early 2000s, I still would have had a pretty good collection. Uh, when DVD started coming around and VHS started to die, I weeded them out. So, excuse me. Unfortunately, I don't have a massive collection. I do have a, a couple of boxes full that I hold on to and stuff that's sentimental to me. Um, do you have a favorite one? I think the one that holds true right now as my favorite is I found in a Goodwill for 25 cents, a old beat up copy of return to Oz. Oh, wow. And I, I love return to Oz. It's one of the creepiest kid movies I've ever seen. And just the fact that I found it and in what looks like it's original, like <laughs> this, it wasn't like a, a copy of a, a re-release or anything like that. It was the, whatever the first release was. And it looks like it too. Uh, but that's that's probably my favorite at this point. But I have a lot of the, the John Carpenter movies on VHS. I'm a big John Carpenter fan, so I kind of hold those to near and dear to my heart. Um, I love stuff in the old clamshells where they actually just cut up the box and put it into oh, yeah. the into the clamshell for the box art. So yeah, I mean, the VHS files came about because we were we were kids of the video store generation. Um, that's what Fridays meant to us. It meant we were going to go rent a video at the video store. We were going to order pizza and we were going to sit around and laugh or be scared or, or whatever it was for the movie we watched for that week. And that's how, that's how we became who we are. That's how we became the movie lovers we are. So we've got a lot to say about movies, whether they're old movies, new movies. I kind of put myself in a corner with the VHS files. Cause yeah, our, our thing right now has been staying back in the eighties and that was really just because we wanted to sort of take it from where the genesis of our love for movies came from. A 
a lot of what we're doing right now are those movies that made us movie fans. Um, after the first of the year, we're going to get more into a rotation of probably mixing it up and everybody just choosing a different movie each week. But since we just started and we wanted to have like a set schedule so we could get a good, good handful of episodes out, we made a plan of what we wanted to do throughout the end of the year. So, and we're closing with one of my favorite movies of all time. So, Well, I, I got to say my, my, my favorite thing about listening to your podcast is it does take me back to the days of going to the video store with my friends yep. and you're walking the aisle and you're picking up the covers. I mean, half the time the covers sold you on getting that movie home. And most mm -hmm. of the time it didn't live up to the cover. Right. But uh, looking at you chopping mall. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but, you know, I, I know you guys talked about this one. Um, I, <laughs> I had never seen it until about a month ago. Oh, really? <laughs> and I, I, I was even, I didn't even know that there was no psycho killer or anything in it. I, I was like, this is a RoboCop in a mall with Ed 209s killing people. Like I had never seen it. And I, I, I watched the whole thing. Uh, I'm a Barbara Crampton fan. So it's kind of unfortunate that I hadn't seen it at that point. But yeah, it's, that movie does not deliver on what it's advertising <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> it's still a fun. I, I still love that film. Brad and I just, it was a good pick for our Halloween uh, month. Yeah. Um, typically, this is the type or the part of the show where we would sit down and for first time guests, we would ask him five questions. Hmm. Brad has come up with something new that he sprung on me today. So, Brad, what, what are we doing in lieu of the five questions? Well, I'm, I'm it's beginning to uh, it's it's coming to the end of the year and I've I've started to wonder if maybe I need a career change being in the financial world the end of the year is the most scary part of your job. So today I was um, thinking, I'm just going to do a quiz show because on the VHS files, sometimes they play trivia. So I said, okay, Josh is coming on our show. So let's play a little trivia. I these, love some good trivia. These are all based around VHS questions. Uh, Ooh. Okay. So obviously Josh has an advantage already just based on the topic. Okay. So this is not a bomb versus um, VHS files. I'm like the Joker. I've, I've broken the pool <laughs> stick in half and there can only be one. Um, I don't so, think I'm going to make it out alive. Okay. okay. First I question. I, 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 see, I tend to choke under pressure sometimes. I <laughs> <laughs> like me, man. <laughs> first question. The first run releases of American VHSs. Can you name one of the first releases in the United States. Wow. So Raise the title of the film? Yes. There's three films. Can you name one? I There's going to be a long pause. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to give you like five seconds. <laughs> yeah, we, we have, I, I've actually got a timer here if you want to. <laughs> yes. I can. Uh, so I'm going to put, I'm going to throw a guess out there because it's the first movie that we rented on VHS and I know it's the wrong answer. But it's the cat from outer space. That is not correct. Yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> it's either the sound of music. Okay. Patton, or Mash. Ooh. That was none of those were on my radar. Okay. I just learned something today. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the inverse of that question: What was the last VHS released? Oh God! The man, last. You're... You yes. went to the crypt for these Jeez, <laughs> dude. I didn't know we'd have to study on this. Hello, creeps. Um, <laughs> wow. The last VHS. Okay, I'm going to give you a clue. Okay. There's male uh, frontal nudity in this movie. Boogie Nights? Mm, 
think of God. Think of a character from the Lord of the Rings. Oh, like Eastern Promises? The other one. History of Violence. History of Violence. Ding, ding, ding. Was the last VHS. Wow. Yes. Sweet. That's yes. crazy. Did not yeah, know no. that. 2006. Huh. Okay. Big, I'm a big Cronenberg fan, too. So. <laughs> well played, Josh. Well played. Okay. Number three. The VHS was invented by what company? Sony. Wrong. Really? Yes. Uh, 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 was it R RCA? Ooh. It is initialization, though. JVC? JVC is correct. Oh, I got one? Sweet. Yes. yes. All right. So Only after guessing wrong the first time. I mean, time. This, is, this is kind of like just take a guess until you get it. So Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll take I it, man. I think we're one-to-one. -one. Take um, an answer. I got it. Can you name the best-selling VHS of all time? E.T. Wrong. Wow. I want to, as, as many of them as you see in places, I want to say Titanic. That is not correct. Is it Jane Fonda's workout? <laughs> oh, I, mm. <laughs> uh, Richard Simmons workout? Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. not Jane Fonda. It's got to be Richard Simmons. Yeah, it's got to be a workout tape. Think uh, the mouse here, guys. Oh, oh is it... Uh, going to be Disney. Fantasia. Toy Newer. Story. Little Mermaid. All right. All right. The answer is The Lion King sold uh, 32 million copies. Wow. It added to the gross of Lion King of $520 million. They're just printing money. Yep. Jeez. Okay. You guys aren't going to get this one, but we'll, I'll ask it anyway. Okay. The tape inside of a VHS is how long in feet? 522 feet. Okay. Josh, we could do uh, prices right. You can go a dollar or you can go one above. It's closest without going over. I want to say like 800 feet. I think it's less okay. than worth it. It is 1,410 feet. Hmm. Well, Josh gets that. He's closest. Yes. All right. Okay. Last question. Okay. This is the easiest one. All right. What does V what does VHS stand for? Video home system? Yes, that is correct. Oh, you just disgraced me in front of my whole I think that's whole fan I think base. that was actually two to I think that was two to two. Yeah, that's a tie, man. Yeah. That's awesome. But, but I have I have a show called VHS Files and I couldn't come up with what, this, what VHS stands for. Well we didn't right. tell I, hey look, I didn't know we had to study for this sucker. So uh but I learned something. The Lion King, gosh dang. 32 million copies. That's ridiculous. And as many times as I've bought that on all the different formats, I've contributed to it. Yeah. You no. know, because Walt Disney needs more of your money. Yeah, no kidding. I'll tell so, you what's ridiculous. So when I was building my Blu-ray collection, just looking for those Disney movies when they were out on Blu-ray, God. I... Now but you can have them all for $7.99 a month. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Well, listen. Um, that was that was fun, Brad. We got we got to do a little bit more of that with uh, some of our other guests. Um, before we get into this week's film, we did have some listener email, and there's a couple of questions in here, and I thought this would be great for us to kind of discuss. So, I'm going to start with uh, an email that came from Chris Evans. I don't know if it's the Chris Evans, Captain America. It could be. The subject is Christmas question, and this is perfect, Josh, since you guys are doing a lot of Christmas films this month. So, Chris, hope you're having an awesome December. Thank you for sending us a little bit of feedback. So here we go. Greetings from Colorado. 
This is Chris, and I wanted you to know that I have enjoyed your podcast immensely. Thanks, Chris. We, we immensely. enjoy doing this. I like that word. Yes. Now for a question. Is there a non-Christmas movie that you watch every December to get into the Christmas spirit? Thanks for taking my question, and I love the show. All right, I'm going to start with our guest, Josh. Um, Chris sent us this awesome question. Do you, do you have a movie that gets you in the spirit of Christmas, but it's a non-Christmas movie? Well... I, I guess I don't really, but I, I I will say the family stone is a staple of mine around this time of year. It's set in Christmas. I don't know if people consider it a Christmas movie, probably if it's set at Christmas time, but um, it's one of those unlikely movies that I never thought would be on my rotation at Christmas time. Uh, and the first couple of times my wife and I watched it, we, we, we hated it. It was just the terror. The characters were terrible. Uh, we just didn't understand what was going on in the movie. And as you grow older and watch it over and over again, you really start to see it's, it's not as bad as you thought it was. And uh, you end up loving everything about it. And it's just become a staple in my house. And it's, it's just, I would say that's my not likely of a Christmas movie. I watch at Christmas time. Like it, I, I would, I wouldn't think a lot of people hold that one near and dear to their heart. Like me and my wife do. So. Okay. Uh, well, but, that's a good pick, but, man. Anything that's not Christmas related, not really. Um, I mean, I usually just watch horror movies all the way up until Christmas time because I'm a big <laughs> horror hound. <laughs> there you go. All right, Brad, what's what's your pick on this one? I immediately went to Fargo on this one. That's 1996. So obviously North Dakota in, you know, Fargo, North Dakota, a lot of snow. So it just always gets me in the Christmas spirit. Um, not a lot of Christmas stuff going on in that movie, um, but... <laughs> You know, just the cold weather, uh, living in the Midwest, it just gets me in this, this spirit. So I watch it every December. I haven't watched it yet, but um, but the vis- the visual of 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 blood blood raining out of a uh, um a, a what do wood you chipper it? wood chipper onto white snow just has this Christmas feeling about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Santa waterproof. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna say any Shane Black movie. So <laughs> there you go. All, all of his films kind of take place, but th- honestly, he's in p- love with Christmas time. Yeah. The pick I have, um, and I know this is controversial, is that Die Hard was always the film that we watched. Die Hard is a Christmas time, movie, but it's, it's not a Christmas, Christmas movie. movie. It is a it's Christmas, not a Christmas oh, movie. Oh, are we going to get on this debate now? Josh, yeah, I'm sorry. What side, what side I, are you I know, on? Josh, it's a, uh, it's in your lineup for this month, but. I have all of the movie posters that came out in July of 88. There's, there's nothing Christmassy about the poster. It it's, it's one of those films that yes, it has a Christmas setting, but I I group it in with those Shane black films um, that, you know, he has Christmas as a theme and a setting within it, but Die Hard gets me in the Christmas mood, but his wife is at, is, is what kind of party is his wife? His wife could have been at a Halloween party and Terrence could have taken it over. It would have been the same movie. So I think the first music you hear in Die Hard is or the first song you hear in Die Hard is a run DMC Christmas song. Yes. And we just went over this on the Gremlins episode. If your movie starts with a Christmas song, you're, you're kind of a Christmas movie. I believe nope. also Sorry. Ho 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 is written on a t-shirt. Again, now I have replace, a machine gun. You could replace the entire holiday theme and you would get the same film. So why why do people gravitate to I don't Die know. Hard and not Die Hard 2? Die Hard 2 is a Christmas Eve. You you have a point there, and I will go to bat for that one as well. But I would also go to bat for Lethal Weapon. Why is why is Die Hard 
a Christmas movie, quote exactly. unquote, and Lethal Weapon isn't because it said it said at Christmas time. There's just something Christmas comes through more in Die Hard somehow. Maybe it's the ho 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 written on the T-shirt with the hat and all that stuff. Like there's more of those kind of antics in it, maybe. But yeah, I mean, we're hey, gonna I'm, get into this at the end of the year. I find it more of an after Christmas movie, honestly. Oh, it's okay. After after the holidays are over, you get a nice big release of just watching a kick-ass action movie. You know. Yeah, I just I, I've loved Die Hard. It is. Did Josh, the did Josh just settle like the whole thing? Like, no, it's just it's just an in between. Like it's a <laughs> after Christmas movie. I, I like that. I mean, oh, it's, okay, I could. I, I'm 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 good with that. I I don't I don't I don't get on people who think it's a Christmas film. It's just it, I think it's one of those subjective things for me. We'll, I always we'll, put we'll it. We'll go as ahead an and settle first. the. We'll, we'll settle all the arguments right now. Die Hard is you can watch it any fucking time you want to. Maybe. I agree. There you Agreed. go. Agreed. Yes. I, I love it. It's just one of those you can watch it at Christmas time. You could watch it in February. You could watch it in the dead middle of summer. You're gonna enjoy it no matter what time you watch it. I, I man, Josh. I can't dropping, wait for your diehard episode. Dropping mics around here. It is. It's coming up. What, should should I weeks? just? Should I leave, Troy? Should I? <laughs> Josh, you got this. Josh is awesome. Well, hey, Chris, thank you for the email. You know, send us some more feedback. That is an awesome question. We got one more, and this one's a doozy too. So this is from our good friend um, Ben. Ben, I got a news flash. Santa said you're on the nice list. So whatever Blu-ray or 4K you have on your list, I know you're getting it. So Ben writes in, hey, bomb crew. First, let me say that the Milan episode was amazing. I didn't know how much I wanted to hear two grown men talk about Milan until I heard it. Uh, that Thank you, Ben. Th that episode worried both of us because A, it's Milan. And when we started doing our research, I think we both walked in, Brad, you know, Hey, this is going to be pretty interesting, but we didn't think we were going to go two hours on it. So, no. um, okay. Now for my question, is there a director or type of film that gets universal praise that you just don't get? So Brad, I'm going to start with you on this one. What director or type of film everybody loves? Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. Why, yes. why Wes Anderson? I just don't get it. I've tried. I've tried with all of his movies. I just can't do it. Do you enjoy his films or just? No, not really. Not, not like I just, none of them have ever clicked with me. And I, I feel like I am out on this Island that is, I, I don't know. I just can't do it. I can't do it. I should because we're cousins, but you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're wrong. So Josh, that, what that in trauma films, but I don't know if trauma films are like universally praised. So uh, they got a, they got an interesting cult following. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Yeah, big, and big underground if you, following. If you meet Lloyd Kaufman, nobody is better in person than Lloyd Kaufman. That I know, I've met amazing. him like a hundred times. I know, I, he's, he's a nice fantastic. guy, but I, his movies all suck. <laughs> all right, Josh, what's your pick? Um, I, I will say, Brad, I was right there with you on Wes Anderson for a while, and and I don't know, maybe it's my age and the way my film taste has kind of progressed over the years, but. I have found that things like that, that I didn't so much get back then, I'm finding more interesting now, which kind of brings me to David Lynch. Oh, um, When I was 20 something all the way into my thirties, I would have told you David Lynch is just some, I don't know what that dude's about. I think uh, after I watched Twin Peaks and a couple of his earlier films like Eraserhead, that's when I really started to find my film taste changing. Like I started to get out of that muck of wanting to see the regular Hollywood movie. And I wanted to be challenged with something. Uh, another movie is uh, like, um, like enemy, uh, Denny Villeneuve's one of his early movies. Mm -hmm. um, that movie is bonkers. 
and I love every minute of it. I, I like that at the end, I'm going, what am I, what, like, you know, just leaving you with questions, the more I can pawn over something, the more I like it. So I wouldn't have liked that until a few years ago. Now I'm all about that kind of stuff. But I mean, Terrence Malick has never really resonated with me. And a lot of people hold him in very, very high regard. And I just, I like Tree of Life. I like, um, I, I like a couple of his films. Um, one of the early ones that's on Criterion. I can't even think of the name of it now, but um, but I, I've never really gotten his style. So Terrence Malick would be the one for me, I guess. What about Thin Red Line? I know that was coming out the same time as Saving Private Ryan. That was really the first Ter- like Terrence Malick movie I watched as a you know as a Terrence Malick movie. Sure. Uh, when I really started getting into like the Criterion collection and collecting those Blu-rays and stuff, and a lot of his stuff is on there. And yeah, Thin Red Line is good. I, I do like it. it's very like. It's almost like a full metal jacket-ish sort of style. Like full metal jacket, I don't consider to be a typical war movie. It's very weird the way Kubrick set it in the barracks and then it goes into the war theme. And it's very, it's a very just weird jump in the middle of that movie that that makes you uncomfortable. And I kind of find the thin red line does the same thing. It has all of this symbolism and all this other stuff. So it, it, it doesn't feel like your contemporary war movie that would, have you intrigued in what's going on? It's more of a thinker than it is a, you know, big, just war masterpiece. You know what I mean? Yeah, it it does have that interest. I mean, Malick has a lot of grandiose film elements within his film, but he also can be very introspective at the same time. Yeah. And I, I do think you've got to be into that in order to appreciate him. I think I think Wes Anderson and Terrence Malick are, are fantastic picks because I do think a lot of people put him on a pedestal and universally, I, I don't know. I, I love them both personally, but I can also see where people can get detracted from just from the style of the film, their subject matter. I, I've come, I've come to really respect Wes Anderson, but I will say he makes the same movie over and over again. I mean, his film style is the same every time, whether it's animated or, you know, his, his stop motion stuff, or it's just a regular drama. Um, you know when you're watching a Wes Anderson movie and that can feel like the same movie to some people. You know what I mean? Well, speaking of that, that's where my pick goes. So this, this person, I I think I was really into and my daughter's going to hate me, but she never listens to this. So not a big deal. (laughs) My pick's Tim Burton. I really think that after all of these years growing up on, you know, Beetlejuice and, and watching his, proliferation as a, sure, as a director. I, I swear to God, if you say something bad about Batman 89 and Batman returns, mm. I'm getting up and walking away. No, the, the thing of it is when I, when I look at all of those films and even Ed Wood, I mean, I, I absolutely love Ed Wood. There's a point in time where Tim Burton just starts making the same film has the same themes to what you were talking about with Wes Anderson. I feel that way with Tim Burton. And well, he wasn't, he stopped being unique yeah. after, after the nineties. I think so. And, and there's nothing about Tim Burton anymore that draws me to it. And I know everybody this time of year and Halloween, I mean, my daughter was just on friends with Cinefits talking about nightmare before Christmas. I think it, I think it's a good film. I don't think it's fantastic. I, I don't know why that one is held on a pedestal. I don't know why a lot of Tim Burton work is held on a pedestal because when you take a step back, he's been making the same film for the longest time. So, 
I hate anything after like 90, well, not hate, but because I like Sleepy Hollow a lot, but anything kind of that has to do with, oh, and I like Big Fish too. Troy, you got me all weird because <laughs> there's a lot I Big like. Big Fish is okay. I, I, and I'm not saying that he makes bad films. Don't get me wrong. There's just a point where he dazzled us in the beginning with his originality. Yeah. But even when I go back and look at Edward Scissorhands and, and some of what are considered his classics, I think they're good, but I don't know if it's that I've been exposed to Tim Burton for so long. When I go back and look at his older work, some of the shine has come off of it now. Well, that's what's always blown me away about Tim Burton is thinking that Pee Wee was his first movie. And while as a kid, I didn't compare Pee-wee to Beetlejuice. You know what I mean? Like it didn't yeah. have that same, uh, like Pee-wee and Beetlejuice are two completely different movies. Watching both of them as adults now, you can completely see where Tim Burton is in there in both of them. Um, the thing about Tim Burton is, is at the time you had never seen a movie like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You had never seen a movie with things like Beetlejuice and the things he did in that. You had never seen Batman done the way he did Batman. In the beginning of his career, he he was this artist that people found striking and 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 made things that people had never seen before. But when you repeat that as often as he has, he he never grew out of that phase. I can kind of go on about this with Rob Zombie as well, but um, he didn't grow out where directors grow into bigger be bigger better things like Spielberg or 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 you know Scorsese. Um, Tim Burton stayed within within his niche his niche yeah, and, it, and, and, and it just kind of starts to regurgitate itself. Yeah, I agree. Kind of start to become a parody of yourself at some point in time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's there yet. I just, I just know, like I said, I enjoy his films. They're good, but people who come across as Tim Burton is one of the most visionary, unique directors out there. I, I just don't buy that anymore. And, and like you said, Josh, I, I think he started out on this trajectory, but ne never grew out of it. So, I mean, he, he deserves to be on a list of, of revolutionary film role. I don't know if revolutionary is the word, but like uh, uh, he deserves to be on a list of filmmakers by, by all means for, for what he contributed to film. But to he would be at the bottom of the top 100. You know what I mean? Sure. Like he wouldn't be at the top half of that. He'd be at the bottom somewhere. Yeah, his, his filmography, I don't think, is very strong. It, it starts out good, but, you know, the, the totality yeah. of it, I just, I don't think, and even the stuff he produced, it's okay. Right. Um, well, Brad, this is, this is episode 27, and this was your pick. In December, we were trying to pick what we considered to be a good discussion for 2020 in terms of movies that bombed. So I kicked it off with my theatrical pick, Mulan. You're coming at it from a different angle you're picking a home media release and so this film flash gordon got a lot of love this year from a couple of different companies why why this one um so it's the 40th anniversary um like two weeks ago i think um because this film comes out december 5th of 80 so yeah so you know when we're recording this nine days ago um this year got a 4K release, um, and I'm a sucker like the two people on this phone call. When <laughs> new stuff comes out, um, is re-released, I'll buy it again, and I'll buy it again. Um, when it's when the 8K is a thing in 10 years, I'm rebuying all these movies again. Um, so yeah, so I bought it. It's a beautiful um, kind of release 
I hadn't watched it yet because I knew we were doing it for the show. This has been one of those uh, three months in the making episodes. Like when we first started this flash Gordon was like one of the first ones we talked about. So I, I really wanted to get around to talk to this because it a has a fascinating kind of production and a lot of what ifs um, with this movie. So I, I figured this was a good, um, a good film to, talk about on the podcast just because of not only the movie itself and the legacy that it's had, but everything surrounding it in the production. Um, Dino De Laurentiis, we get to talk about him. So. Oh yeah. This, this will be interesting. So the version that I have, and like you said, I don't know how many times I bought this one, but when they announced the 4k studio canal over in the UK produced a four disc set and it was the 4k version of the film, the Blu-ray a whole slew of special features on another blu-ray disc a documentary life after flash which is chronicling what happened to sam jones after the film and then disc five which is the original soundtrack by queen but arrow also released a 4k edition over the u.s i think uk as well which one did you watch was it the arrow i have the arrow yeah okay i have the arrow as well and you have the arrow and josh this is the first time you've seen flash gordon so you are you're coming into this cold right yeah i kind of I, I i dropped my bomb before this the show started tonight but um yeah this is a first watch for me and and like brad just brought up um a lot of the reason i picked up this arrow release is because it was getting a lot of praise and um you know i figured it was time for me to get into the pop culture of of, of the 80s that i do a podcast about and actually watch flash gordon and um it's it's worth picking up if you're a fan of the movie or if you're a fan of good looking media. This is one of this is probably the best 4K I've watched this year. Uh, I agree 100. percent And and since we're all watching different versions of the 4K, that I have been this close to just going ahead and double dipping just to get the Arrow 4K to see if there's any differences because I love the Studio Canal release. Um, the only thing I don't like about this box. There's so much stuff in it. When you open it up, it all falls out with the <laughs> postcards and the posters and everything else. But I'm not complaining, right? You can't um, put it all back in the way it was in there, though. Yeah, but it, oh, God, this thing is is gorgeous. So I am so curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. And, and usually when we talk about the film, we're talking about something that bombed either critically or from a review standpoint. Brad, let's start with the financials on this one. This one had an interesting... Uh, I would say trajectory in terms of pre-production. And then when it came out, this, this did well in a couple of countries and didn't do so hot across the board. Right. So what, what's the history behind this thing in terms yeah. of how much it cost and how it did. So we're looking at a budget of $27 million, which in context, um, the empire strikes back was $33 million. So if you want to kind of put that into perspective, um, out of the quality that you can get for an extra six million dollars in the eighties, I don't know what that is. Might, might not be the last time you hear Star Wars interjected yes. in this conversation. Yes. Um, and, and should we say allegedly twenty-seven million? Because even in my old Starlog magazine that I dug out, I think in the interview with Sam Jones, he quoted it as a forty million dollar project. So I, I've seen some numbers all over the place on this one. Yeah, um, and I even saw something as low as twenty. Um, but from what I could see, 27 was kind of the, let's just go with that number. Okay. Um, so we'll go with that number. Um, it, it earns all that money back in the United States over its theatrical run. Um, has a really good run 
in the United Kingdom makes 14 million pounds, which I don't know what the hell a pound is. Um, <laughs> okay. And it does. Guy. <laughs> so, so it does. And it also does pretty well in Italy because there's two Italian um, actors in this movie as well. So it actually doesn't really bomb. If you kind of add all that together um, again, I think the budget was probably a little bit more than what they say um, due to the fact that they made like these huge sets and the costumes we'll get into it. But I, I mean, this movie doesn't look um, like it, it didn't cost anything. So um, well, this, this was designed to be a franchise. They yes, had was. signed everybody up for three movies and like you said, it doesn't necessarily bomb. And as the story goes, we'll talk about Dino here in a minute. But with an Italian production like this, most of the production cost gets made even before it gets distributed because they're selling off the rights. Yeah, they do pre-selling of rights in Italy. So basically it's making money before it's even released. Now, you're getting what I was looking at. You're getting like a set amount at that point in time and sure. not a... So you're, you're basically saying, okay, instead of a chance of making $50 million, we're just going to take five because that five is guaranteed. Um, I don't know if those are the exact numbers. That's just an example. So you're, you're guaranteeing so whether, yourself money back. Whether you're a blockbuster or a bomb, yes. you are guaranteed this amount of money. Yes. Yeah. And so it, it limps across the finish line. It doesn't just go sailing. And obviously there weren't any sequels after this because it just didn't garner oh, enough money darn. to put more... <laughs> into this franchise. So how did it, how did it review Brad? What, what did everybody think of it? So right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it sits at, well, let me, well, I, I have to preface this. So it's really high for what it is um, at 83%. Now, when I went back and looked at it, there's only one review from 1980. The rest of them are um, 2000s and beyond. Um, I will say that uh, Cisco and Ebert did a little, feature it on their TV show of this movie. Siskel did not like it. Ebert was all about the camp in this movie. Well, uh, he barely liked it. So we put, we put I, you that know, on our, our Facebook I, page. He, I feel like Siskel kind of made him walk back his enthusiasm a little bit, which <laughs> I think Siskel did that a lot. Yeah, so, I agree. <laughs> um, but God, I love, I love watching those two guys. I love it so much. I do too. Um, well, you, you mentioned, well, for the budget, I think most of the budget went to Queen, if you want to be completely honest. <laughs> well, yes, yes. We haven't even talked about that, but yes, the soundtrack of this movie was done by Queen, and it slaps. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's one of those where I think upon release, there were such high expectations for this film. It didn't come out gangbusters. Not everybody fell in love with it. Well, you have, to re you have to remember May of to of 1980 empire strikes back comes out which is you know with anyone who loves star wars will probably say is the best thing star wars has ever done um sure. and just six months after that here comes this thing called flash gordon and you're like what um again the star wars ties will continue but um i'm just saying to put it in context empire strikes back comes out seven months before this movie Right. So there, there are a lot of hopes on this one to be a financial cash cow. It, it didn't happen. There are 500, $550 million is what Empire brought in. So 
I that year. Know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else came? I mean, what was this going up against at the time? Oh, uh, I didn't look at that because I was just you like, were just like Empire Strikes Back. That's yes. all that matters. Okay. So, but I did look at the top grossing films of 1980. And to be perfectly honest, uh, Flash Gordon is in the top 25. It comes in at 24. Um, I, so it's not like it didn't do anything. Um, guess how much, guess what the second grossest, highest grossing film of 1980 was? Gosh, I nine no to idea. five. Nine oh, to that, five. that makes total sense though. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And then stir crazy Mad Max and airplane are your top five for that year. There Mad you go. Max. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the people behind the making of this film, boy, that even gets more interesting. So when we're talking about everybody behind the camera, let's first start talking about director Mike Hodges. How familiar are you with Mike Hodges, Josh? Um, he directed Flash Gordon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good answer. Cause that was going to be my answer too. Cause I, and I think that's pretty much relatively it. No, yeah. no, not at all. So Come on, he, Troy. he came out uh, with a pretty strong film. He'd done some TV work, but 1971's Get Carter kind of put him on the map. So he worked oh, with Michael Caine. With Michael Caine, yeah. In the beginning, did two films, Get Carter and Pulp in 1972. Uh, did The Terminal Man in 74, which was based on a Michael Crichton novel. So him as a filmmaker, especially in the beginning, is established from a thriller perspective. I mean, if, if you've seen Get Carter, it, it's a fantastic film. And even later in his filmography, he teams up with Clive Owen and gets critical acclaim. And it does really well from an independent standpoint for Groupier in 1998. Follows that up with 2003's I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, also with Clive Owen. Those two films are fantastic. If, if you are into just good dramatic, the, I, I don't want to call them thrillers or gangster films or anything. They're, they're just unique. And he also, his filmography is, is so weird. Um, on top of the movie that we're talking about today, Flash Gordon in 1980. So to put this in perspective, what he was working on leading up to that, again, Get Carter, Pulp, The Terminal Man. He's uncredited for Damien Omen 2. He was set to do that one, but then came off of it. Then he does Flash Gordon. He also does a film called Morons from Outer Space in 1985. And if you haven't seen that, it's it's okay. It, it's a pretty good comedy. He does A Prayer for the Dying with Mickey Rourke and Bob Hoskins in 87 and Black Rainbow in 1989 with Roseanne Arquette and Tom Holtz. That's another good thriller. So most of everything Mike Hodges has done are gritty crime capers, thrillers, just some good work all, all in all. And if you look at that filmography, the two movies that do stick out, Morons from Outer Space, but more importantly, Flash Gordon. Now, that's the director. And you've already talked about this, Brad. This movie gives us a chance to talk about one of the most prolific producers in all of history, Dino De Laurentiis. So this is an Italian producer that over seven decades has produced about 150 films. Can you guys rattle some of the movies that Dino De Laurentiis is, is known for? The Godfather? Right? His <laughs> Bonds? Well, let's let's just go through the list of directors he's worked with. So he's um, done La Strada with uh, Federico Fellini, um, Danger Diabolique with Mario Bava. He's he produced Barbarella, um, Serpico with Sidney Lumet. Okay, the Al Pacino film. 
He was the producer for Death Wish, the Charles Bronson film directed by Michael Winner. King Kong, the remake. Uh, I think that was directed by John Gillerman. The Shootist, which was John Wayne's last film. So he produced that, directed by Don Siegel. I don't know if you remember the big uh, Jaws craze. He did Orca, directed by Michael Anderson. Oh, The Killer Whale, yeah. Yes. He's worked with William Freakin in 78 on The Brinks Job. This is super interesting. He worked with Rick Rosenthal in 81 on Halloween 2. He produced that. The one that always sticks out for me is Conan the Barbarian, John Milius, 82, which you've talked about this on your show, right, Josh? Yep, yep. Great this episode. And, and Halloween 2. Yes. Amityville 2, The Possession. Amityville 3D, so he did those. So he has his foot clearly in the horror genre. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Here's where it gets interesting. Dead Zone with David Cronenberg. So really in the 80s, uh, Dino De Laurentiis was putting out a lot of Stephen King projects at that point. So you've got Dead Zone, Firestarter, comes back with Conan the Destroyer. He's worked with one of your favorites, um, Josh, David Lynch. He's the producer on Dune. He <laughs> also is the producer on Manhunter. So we got Michael Mann and the whole Hannibal Lecter legacy started there. I, I totally forgot about this. Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness. Sam Raimi, he's worked with that. He was a producer. Bound, he's worked with the Wachowskis in 96 and um, Ridley Scott when he did Hannibal in 2001. So Dino De Laurentiis was really responsible for keeping the whole Hannibal Lecter series of films going. So you can go back and look at how many just different directors and iconic directors and iconic movies this producer has put out. I can't think of anybody up there in this type of caliber, especially in the eighties or nineties. I mean, this guy is i don't know the the walt disney of adult um contemporary cinema i, I don't know or, or at least he's he's the walt disney of my childhood through the 80s <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it um production design uh danilo donati we're going to talk about him as well as um john Graysmark, who's the art director the screenplay some interesting things about the screenplay so lorenzo semple jr is credited as the um as writing the screenplay the adaption by Michael Allen. These are all based on characters from Alex Raymond from the Flash Gordon comic series that came out in the 30s. We talked about. Now, the do you music. know? Do you know the re, the origins of Flash Gordon? Yeah, Flash Gordon as a as a comic strip really was the answer to Buck Rogers. So it debuted at I think 1934. Yeah, it was kind of an answer to the Great Depression. Yes. Um, so, so. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was an answer to the Great Depression, but it was also an answer to uh, Buck Rogers, who was around at that point. And, and we'll talk about when Flash Gordon got released, too, because Buck Rogers is always sitting in the wings when it comes to Flash Gordon. And um, we, we talked about the music, Queen and Howard Blake. We'll probably talk about that in a lot of detail when we get to thoughts on the film. Let's talk about in front of the camera. So this is, again, where it gets very interesting. You've got Sam J. Jones as Flash Gordon. So, guys, can you tell me any other films that you've seen Sam Jones in and Ted doesn't count or Ted 2? He did hang brain in a, a nudie magazine. I do know that. <laughs> Which was reprinted in January of 81 yeah. after Flash Gordon. So this could become a long conversation if you'd like. Um <laughs> oh boy here we go <laughs> i always love it when someone prefaces. wow would you okay <laughs> most people probably do link sam jones to flash gordon especially with ted 
and him kind of being in that and, and that kind of that was one thing I wanted to mention when you were talking about the Rotten Tomatoes score is how much of that is really con- attributed to Ted re- revitalizing that at the time it came out. Yes, good point. But <laughs> I I know Sam Jones as the Highwayman, and if you were a kid in the '80s, you would have seen a brief period, and I think it was 1987 or or maybe even before there was a TV show called The Highwayman. Um, and it was Sam Jones. He was the lead. Um, I don't know. I don't know how old you guys are, but uh, if you remember back in the eighties, when there was the Energizer commercials, there was this Austrian guy. Uh, his name was, I can't remember his, his name. It was something weird, but uh, he was, that guy was like Energizer. Oy! Like he, he did a lot of commercials for Energizer. At the okay. time. So he was the co-star in this and they were, it took place in the future. It was like Mad Max meets the X-Files. It was like... Was that guy t- named Jacko? Jacko. Mark Jackson? That's him. Yep. There you go. I think yeah. I barely remember this show. It was pretty weird. It, 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 that's what I remember Sam Jones from. Um, when it's actually... It's so funny because when I told my guys on the, on the show that I was going to guest on you guys podcast and talk about flash Gordon, they were like, Oh, well, um, my buddy Jason in Texas just went to a small little con and Sam Jones was there. And he was like, Oh man, Sam Jones. And I was like, Sam Jones, you mean the Sam Jones from like, I had to revert back to the <laughs> Highwayman series. Cause I had never seen flash Gordon. And I was like, Holy crap. He's flash Gordon. I, I had no idea. That's crazy. He's I, I can't, Outside of his filmography, when I look at it, nothing really sticks out other than Flash Flash Gordon. I mean, I know he's done a lot of TV. I, I think he did um, what I consider like a bunch of direct-to-video stuff. He he was in a Cynthia Rothrock film like Lady Dragon 2 or something. So I don't, I don't think he really had the prolific film career that he was expecting after Flash Gordon. Like you said, Brad, he was in Playgirl in 1975. So that's five years before the film. Flash Gordon comes out. They reprint his pictures and everything in 81. The first film that he was actually in was in a film directed by Blake Edwards, 10, with Dudley Moore. And I don't even remember him in that one. I thought this was interesting. So he beat Kurt Russell and Arnold Schwarzenegger for the role of Flash Gordon. This movie would have been a lot different. I want nothing in this world now than an Arnold Schwarzenegger Flash Gordon movie. I'm going to call the back, you idiots. Yeah, I want the 1980s Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> Flash Gordon. When I read that, I'm like, oh my. What, there's got to be, if, if there is multiple dimensions that do exist, I want to find the one where Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> is Flash Gordon. So bad. It's so, funny so bad. because... It's a, it's it's actually amazing that I had never seen this movie because I saw some bad like movies that wanted to be like this like the old uh, Lou Ferrigno Hercules movies yes and uh, stuff like that and you know Red Sonia all that kind of stuff and I think it would be so fun if you did Avengers style and kind of grouped all of those movies together and then you, uh, you, you you assembled this team of unlikely old eighties <laughs> uh, sci-fi action heroes like yes. Flash Gordon and Red Sonia and whatnot. That could be a different sort of MCU for everybody. And it probably could have happened because Dino De Laurentiis produced Red Sonia. So he, yeah. he was bringing all these people together. The other thing that's interesting about 1980, it is the first year of the golden raspberry award. So it started that year and guess who was nominated for 
worst actor, none other than Sam Jones himself for wow. Flash Gordon. So he didn't win, but in the very first Golden Raspberry Awards, uh, he, he did get a nomination. So a nomination is big, right? Is that fair? Because of what we learn after what happens post-production in this movie? Uh, we're going to talk about that because okay. that's one of the questions I have is, did he deserve it? Or is he a victim of all of the shenanigans that were going on as a result of the production of the film? Uh, the other cast members, we've got Melody Anderson as Dale Arden, Max von Sydow as Emperor Ming. So everybody knows Max, right? Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, Exorcist, Strange Brew, Dune, Minority Report. And if you're playing Not a Bomb Bingo, here's your Jackie Chan connection. Rush Hour 3. There you go with him and Chris Rock. He was also in a Star Wars movie. Yes, he was in that. We've got for Dr. Hans uh, Zarkov, Topol. So Topol, I just know from Fiddler on the Roof. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that film. It's great. It's a great musical. Timothy Dalton as Prince Baron, James Bond. Enough said. Where, where, is, where is Timothy Dalton? Just real quick. We're going to derail real quick. Where is he on the James Bond Last. Scale? Last? He's like right above George Lazenby, but yeah, he's last. Oh my. Oh, wow. We can't be friends. Yeah. Josh, where are you on this one? This could be a long story if you want to get into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are just getting everything out of me tonight. Um, this could actually come up in my near future with a, another friend of mine, but I have only seen A View to a Kill. I'm As the only James Bond film? As the only pre-90s James Bond or actually, oh. even even pre two thousands, like I've seen the Craig movies, and have you haven't to seen like Goldeneye? Nope. None of the Sean Connery stuff. Nope. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you were playing Goldeneye sixty four, you didn't be like, "What is this even based on?" <laughs> That's gonna be another shocker. Is I'm not a gamer. Never played it. Wow. <laughs> we are learning so much, Josh. Wow, Josh, <laughs> loving this. As as big of a geek as I am about some things, video games I just never got into. Like the last video game system I had was a Super Nintendo. You'll find me playing Donkey Kong Country till the cows come home. But other than that, I I'm not a video game. Hey, guy. That, that's perfectly fine. It's a great game, man. Um, I'm gonna say Brad, you're wrong. Timothy Dalton is uh, is one of my favorites uh, in terms of a James Bond. Living Daylights is fantastic. We've got Brian Blessed as Prince Voltan, and he has been in Star Wars too. Do you know which character he was in Star Wars? Brian Blessing. Brian oh, Blessed he... as as our Prince Voltan, the the hot guy. Oh yeah, he was a uh, boss boss Nass. Boss Nass in Episode One, and then rounding out the cast, we have Ornella Muti as Prince Aura. Don't I... don't don't come in me with this that question, Troy. Don't come at you. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> just trying to trip you up. And Peter Weingart as Clytus. So. I, I got to tell you, if you're putting together a huge production and sinking a bunch of film to go head to head with Empire Strikes Back, that wouldn't be the cast I'd put in front of the camera. I, I, I don't know about you guys. Really? You don't say? Yeah. I, I, not that any of them are bad per se. I just on paper, this, this didn't add up considering where these people were in, in terms of their careers in 1980. But We've hinted at the production a little bit. So all the main cast members were signed for multiple films. This film didn't do so hot in terms of the studio's perception. So as things go like this, the sequels were never made. Everybody's contracts were torn up and throughout. 
George Lucas originally wanted to make a modern version of Flash Gordon. He's been a huge Flash Gordon fan. And at the time, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, how many directors have been attached to this. Um, Federico Fellini was optioning the rights when George Lucas was trying to get them and Lucas couldn't afford it. So he turns around and makes Star Wars, right? So he says, I love Flash Gordon. I'm going to make my version. So I'm going to steal it. <laughs> yeah, he's going to steal it. And obviously it's, an, it's a completely different film than the film we're going to talk about tonight in terms of style, color, and tone. Clytus, one of the main characters in this film, was not in the original comic book strip or, or the 1930s uh, or 40s serials. And this is the big thing. So Sam Jones, towards the end of the production, had a big falling out with Dino De Laurentiis. After the holiday break, so everybody's going home, principal production is done. Sam didn't return to help out on the film in any capacity for post-production. And he also refused to go into the recording studio to redub his lines, any of the ADR work. So most of his dialogue in the film is dubbed. And he also didn't do any press tours of the film in the United States. So a lot of people contribute the reason why this didn't do so hot in the U.S. is because your main star, Flash Gordon, wasn't out there promoting it. Uh, and, and what's interesting is I, I mentioned earlier, I found this old Starlog magazine because it was something that I read just cover to cover in anticipation of Flash Gordon. And right in that magazine, right around his interview, they have a whole section on all the production problems of Flash Gordon. And specifically with Sam Jones, he wasn't getting paid uh, what he thought he should be getting for his role. He was trying to negotiate also what he was going to get for the second and third film. But there was a huge falling out. And, and this actually gets a lot of discussion on the special features. And it serves prime. I would say prominently within the documentary um, life after flash as well. So Sam Jones does talk about really what had happened and his falling out with the production. And, and he just, you know, he, he just walked off of it. His representation that, Hey, you just need to ask for more money and everything will be fine and just play hardball. And they didn't flinch. And yeah. yeah. Didn't work out. And, and the other, and he kind of got a reputation, obviously following this movie that he was hard to work with. And cause uh, Dino De Laurentiis is not someone that you probably go up against and, and get a lot of work in Hollywood. Um, no, not that. not that producer. And and also on set, he was getting in a lot of fights. He was he was getting you know scraped up and and you just don't do that when you're making you know a film of of that magnitude. And the other interesting thing I find about this film is that the movie had a lot of directors leading up to the decision um, for Mike. So Federico Fellini was the first one. And that didn't work out. So Dino goes to Sergio Leone and Sergio Leone says, uh, it's, it's not for me, right? Obviously. Hey, <laughs> have you seen the movies I make? Yeah. Mm -mm. So then he lands on Nicholas Rogue and, and Nicholas Rogue. I don't know if you're familiar with his film. So the two films that stick out to me is Don't Look Now uh, with Donald Sutherland or um, I, I think that's right. Donald, yeah, Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. And then The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. So Nicholas Rogue is attached to this in the beginning and spends about a year on pre-production. And he really is the reason why you've got the screenwriter Lorenzo Semple attached to this as well, because they crafted, you know, the screenplay in the beginning. Now, Nicholas Rogue leaves because of creative differences, obviously. With, after a year. After he a year worked with on it Dino. for a year. <laughs> yeah. And um, what's interesting is the original script that they had come up with was incredibly different than what you get today 
It had a lot more social commentary. And the great thing about living in this day and age is if you are a film nut like the three of us and you want to learn anything behind the scenes, this this Blu-ray set is fantastic because I know on the Studio Canal, there's there's a whole behind the scenes about Nicholas Rogue's, you know, one year pre-production. And the movie that they were trying to make, and I thought this was pretty interesting, was their premise is really tackling, okay, Flash was one of the most popular characters of the 30s, which was during the Great Depression. So their screenplay was more about, hey, science isn't working, represented by the Zarkov character, and God is out there playing with Earth and he's out of control. So humanity flings itself towards the heavens to fight back. And, and that was sort of the social commentary that was going on between the rogue script. And obviously it completely changed for the 1980 version. And we get this bright, colorful adventure comedy film that uh, we all maybe love today. So I, I know that's a lot on the background of the film and uh, all who made it and what happened to it. Brad, Josh, anything else you want to share before we get into our thoughts on it? Yeah, Queen did the soundtrack. Just to reiterate, <laughs> Queen did the soundtrack. Queen did do the soundtrack. Queen, um, it was their ninth studio album and their first soundtrack album. They would also go on to do Highlander. And um, let, let's just get into this. And I want to start with our guest, Josh. I'm. This is your first time watch. You went yep. out and got the 4K. You've already talked about how gorgeous it is. 100% believe. But what is your initial thoughts of Flash Gordon as a first-time viewer? I liked it more than I thought I was going to. Um, and and that's accepting it for all of its flaws because it has many. Uh, but this is exactly, like I said, it's amazing that I never saw this movie as a kid because this is exactly what one of the kind of movies that I watched as a kid and just somehow this one slipped through my fingers. Uh, like I said, I've, I've seen the, the Lou Frigno Hercules movies a couple of times and I've never seen Flash Gordon. It's just one of those that I, I got this for that. You know, you got sure. GoBots instead of Transformers, that kind of thing. So um, I, I was loving watching it and I can only imagine what this looked like on an old VHS tape and it probably looked pretty bad. But what I was watching on screen, technical wise, I was like, I can't believe they made a movie from 1980 look this good. Um, but the first thing I noticed in the movie was that is not Sam Jones talking. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Completely dubbed. Um, Brad, this, this was your pick. So this is what the 20th, 30th time you've watched this thing. Um, not necessarily. I've, I've seen this quite a bit, um, but it had been a long time. Um, but when I fired up that, that, that new disc and it was just kind of like a warm blanket. Um, it was just so comforting and so nice to see, this movie and see it practically like Josh was saying, like the costumes and the sets and the colors and just everything pops so well in this movie that it really holds up um, after 40 years um, to the point where it's like probably way better now than ever. Like it, it is actually aged better than, you know, because of the fact that you can see it as vivid as they wanted it um, back in 1980. So, you know, again, the Raz, the Razzies came out this year. It's probably pretty fitting because there's some stuff going on in this movie that is just ludicrous, but they were going for something. Um, I think they had this grand plan of making a trilogy and they didn't land the first one, but um, I'm kind of bummed about that. Cause I, I think, you know, we, 
it might be this thing where we talk about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and like Flash Gordon is like these trilogies that are amazing. Uh, but we kind of missed out on that. So this is kind of the what wasn't but could have been sort of movie. So, you know, it it's one of those things where I, I was kind of glad to go back because it, it really holds up uh, to me. Yeah, I, I got it. I'm with you, both of you, 100%. Watching this on 4K with the right setup, it felt like I was watching it for the first time. There were things within the corners of the the television or images that were popping out that I just never noticed before, even on the last uh, MCA Universal Blu-ray release, because I think that's the the version I had before this 4K upgrade. There's a sequence even at the beginning when they're flying into the storm and you get hot hail, which by the way, what the heck is hot hail? I thought hail was cold. I don't understand hot hail. The science, they also hit, so they don't know what planet they are um, attacking, but he hits the earthquake button. Now you can't really know that it's an earthquake if you don't know that the planet is called earth. Right. You know, so the science might be a little iffy, Troy. We're already poking holes way too yeah. early. Well, no, I, d- I don't mean that because I we all know if you listen to previous episodes, science and math and I don't get along. So I believe it. I just hot hail. I don't know. No, I'm right there with you. I, I, I'm like, <laughs> hot hail. I mean, like just me- say hail. They're not like meteors. Like they look like meteor like, rocks or meteor. What is well, it? it? Right when it enters the atmosphere? I don't know. Well, as small as they are and as little as they come, I'm surprised they did anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But the, the sequence where the pilots are just uh, flying into this red hot hail storm, and for years you get that red thing coming right at them, and it kind of looked like a face, but you weren't ever really sure. And in 4K, you see Max's mug coming right at you in full detail, mm-hmm. and that's an example of something that on VHS you were talking about it. And Josh, as many times I watch this in VHS, and even as a kid watching it in the theater i don't know if i remember that being max von you know cedar's face coming at you in the beginning or ming's face within that red storm but the detail on this thing is so good even when they land on the forest planet you see the map paintings and where you mean dagobah when they land on dagobah yeah yeah, arborea you've got so much detail in these background paintings now that you can see where their rocket ship is which i never picked out before so freezing any scene on this 4k almost looks like a painting because of how much detail and the art design and production value behind it. It, it, it hands down is the best 4k I've seen in 2020. It is reference material. That's a topic that comes up on our show all the time is watching these movies as much as we did as kids on the format that we had, that was, you know, not the best and watching it now where it's been restored and you're seeing it the way, well, who knows if it's really the way the filmmakers intended to see it, but you know, they obviously made movies back then without the intention of being able to see the wires, quote unquote, you know what sure. I mean? Whether well, it's Pinocchio without the strings sort of stuff. Um, now when you're watching these things and they're restoring these films, it, it, it does take a little bit of that luster away because now you can see the strings on Beetlejuice when he flies out of the grave. And, uh, but you also get things like that. You get things that you notice in the background or something that was right in front of your face that you never noticed before because the picture wasn't what it could have been. Yeah, some some of the superimposed images of the modeling, you can see the squares in the background as the ship's moving Yeah, because of the detail. But I, I have to say, even the special effects of this film, to Brad's point, I think it's aged very well. 
I think the production design, the artwork, and the special effects are really top-notch for a 1980s space opera of this caliber. I think a lot of the practical stuff holds up. The blue screen stuff might be... That that stuff is a little bit... Well, I mean, we we, we joke that the, the, the majority of the budget went to Queen, which maybe it did, but a lot of money went into the production design. I'm not oh, going to yeah. fault it for that because, you know, my wife, Jenny Lou, was on the, the show with us and she watched this with me begrudgingly. And um, she was like, at the end of it, I was, you know, giving it its compliments and kind of making my commentary to her like we do with all the movies we watch. And she was like, I'm glad we're not reviewing this movie because I don't know if I'd have anything good to say about it. <laughs> oh, man. It, it's, it's a gorgeous film. I, you cannot deny that this film out of the gate is gorgeous looking. And I don't know if all the money just went to Queen because if you see anything behind the scenes, they actually had to go to these hangars because the studios that they had weren't big enough to do what they wanted to do for the planet sequences. And yeah, they went to like a hangar that was like 3 million square foot or something like that. It was like something crazy. Yeah, they built these ridiculous sets. I mean, you talk about um, Dagobah Part 2 or Arborea. And, and sorry, Dagobah has nothing on this thing in terms of set design and everything else. It's kind of but, a blend of Dagobah and Endor. Like yeah. I was getting, I was getting Endor vibes and and Dagobah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird that you get two space operas in the same year, and they both have swamp scenes in them. So, but the, I, it's still so impressive to look at these sets. And each planet, moon, and city has an entirely different feel. So I really think that leading up to the filming of it, there were years put into the art direction, the pre-production planning. Just the costuming as well. Like some of that oh, yes. is so elaborate. And they made that stuff like a little Italian women like made those costumes. <laughs> it's well, crazy. We can talk about Max von Sydow and Ming and whatnot, but his his little henchman guy, which I I'm terrible with names. If you've heard our show, you know that. Um, but the 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 Darth Vader henchman guy. Clytus. Oh, Cletus. I, I keep thinking that they keep calling him Cletus, but it's Clytus. <laughs> it's Clytus. <laughs> I, I loved him. Like he's he's probably my favorite part of the movie. Um, he's he is just like this this interjection of dark seriousness in the middle of this movie that doesn't really need to be there, but I love that it is there. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And and the other I, I think practical special effect, whatever you, you want to call it, is the skies and clouds and their interpretation of space within this world or this universe, it's incredibly artistic and gorgeous. You get almost like the swirling liquid paint that's mm -hmm. constantly moving in the background. And it, it just adds this very unique vision to already the, this colorful world. So everything about this film on 4K looks fantastic. It's one of the few films if you're really talking about moving pictures, you could put this sucker on mute and just appreciate for everything that's going on visually. It, it's just it might and it might actually be better if you it, just have the Queen soundtrack and then no dialogue. <laughs> it, it, it might be, be a better film. Um, one thing that I kind of got vibes on when they, when they're flying into the cloud that you brought up, um, I was I was getting Fury Road uh, vibes off of that when they're when they're driving into the storm. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Good point, um, man there are a lot of people that have opinions about Fury Road and that might be something we talk about on our show at some point in time, um, which would be a, a good debate. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can, I saw a lot of stuff in this movie that I think was referenced in pop culture that I never got. I, I got major Spaceballs vibes off of certain aspects of this movie. 
like all the all the all the the guys with the the uh, what do what do you call them the goggles the visors um, yeah oh, they yeah. were hooked up to the computer like I just I kept seeing the spaceball helmets with those guys for some reason um, but there's a lot here that I I probably never never noticed before watching this yeah I I think if you can you can throw any kind of criticism you want in terms of the acting the script uh, the story arc wh- whatever you want you really can't throw any shade at the production of this yeah. film and what they put together it, it's fantastic now i do think there are some weird choices in the beginning was that was sam jones driving the station wagon with the wood paneling from the vacation film yeah he was just <laughs> fresh off the holiday road with that thing <laughs> okay because I, I looked at that and again it was something i never would have even thought to pick out but in 4k you're like Hey, that's the Griswold uh, station wagon from vacation. It, it just, it's the same one. Um, and, and before we get in too deep of this, let's talk about the credit sequence. You talk about the queen music being so vital to enjoying this film. It comes out swinging with the flash Gordon theme. You get all of these colorful images from the comic strip coming through interlaced with the credit sequence. I'm, I'm going to go on record here and say that this would be a top 10 credit sequence from the 80s. It is so fun. The music just really gets you pumped and going for this action film. And I love the blend of the original comic strips with the Queen music and, and just, again, the presentation. Boy, now you got my head spinning about what's the, what's the top 10 80s intros well, think of another think of another credit sequence that starts out that way that just really encapsulates the what you're going to experience from a film perspective. But nothing uh, we, just immediately comes to mind. We I mean we 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 talked about it here earlier and we've talked about it on our show. I mean, the Beetlejuice opening credits are are amazing. Yeah. Um I mean, also, you just first... talked about this one on your show too. Christmas Vacation starts off with a freaking cartoon, so I'll take that one too. That's eighty nine. That counts. We're not supposed to bring that up because no. I, the host of the show, completely missed the beginning and I got berated for it oh, on my show. Yeah. So that's true. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the creature design. I mean, we talked about the production stuff. What did you think about the creatures that made up this really gorgeous environment? Did anything stand out to you, Josh? I mean, you talked about Clytus. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that, I mean, uh, from the artwork that's on the 4K and everything and not ever seeing this movie, I mean, the first thing I'm looking for is when Ming gets into the picture because that is something of of, a, of an itself. Um, <laughs> I don't know where Max von Sydow would have been in his career right now. I know, you know, se- you know the Seventh Seal, all that stuff. Uh, I couldn't help but think while I'm watching this entire movie that what is Max von Sydow ashamed of this? <laughs> like I, it seems it doesn't, from what I know him from, it doesn't seem like something he would have been proud of doing. He seems like too, too elegant of a, of an actor to me. You know what I mean? He, he did strange brew. He, he went from the exorcist <laughs> to flash Gordon to strange brew. He does have that like, prestigious kind of feel to him though like i get what you're saying like, like he may not that- be, he may not be a well-known actor to the general public sure. but he is in the upper echelon of actors yeah, I he's, would say. he's like a top shelf like if you're going to a bar he's on the top shelf 
Yeah. It's, it's different from seeing um, uh, James Wong in B Big Trouble in Little China as Lopan. You can buy that. Uh, that's probably the first time I ever saw him in that it was in that get up in that movie. So, but seeing Max von Sydow and everything that I've seen him in and then going into Flash Gordon, that was the first thing on my mind watching this whole movie. I was like, I can't, I, I, I just can't even fathom what think what Max von Sydow is thinking about being in this, in this movie. <laughs> Well, I can tell you what Timmy Dalton thought about being in this movie. He just wanted a paycheck is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of people who weren't excited about it. I, the thing about Ming and especially Max performance, I mean, that gravitas that he brings to it, it I can't think of anybody else in that role. Like if, you know, if evident at some point they're going to come back and go, we're kicking off a flash Gordon franchise and we're going to have, you know, 12 movies now. But I can't imagine anybody else in that role of seeing the comic strip come to life except Max. I, I think he is one of the most perfectly cast elements of the film. And everything that he does is, is just fantastic in this. He's one of the actors that chews through the scenery, but you don't know he's chewing, if that makes sense. He really is going through it. And he's he appears to be having a little bit of fun. And, he, and he's he's just got this subtle way of just living up to that merciless title. I think he, in everything that he does, he's definitely giving it more than Frank Langella did in He-Man and the Masters <laughs> yes. of the Universe. Um, that, I mean, that again, like that was a big part of my childhood was He-Man and Masters of the Universe. And when that movie came out, I was very excited and loved it. I didn't care that it didn't follow the comics or the, the cartoon or anything. Uh, I was just happy to have a He-Man movie, but that's kind of what I kept equating Flash Gordon back to was I can understand people's love for it because I still have this love for this thing that is very cheesy and probably not very, you know, people don't hold it as high regard or well acted or any of that stuff, but I still love it. Um, and that's what I kept, that's where I kept coming back to with Max von Sydow is I was like, I kept comparing him to Skeletor in Masters of the Universe. I, I got to say my favorite scene of max is the wedding vows the wedding vows are just absolutely <laughs> hilarious and how he delivers those lines because you you have the preacher saying do you mean the merciless ruler of the universe take this earthling dale arden to be your empress of the hour do you promise to use her as you will not to blast her into space until such time as you get the whim his whole reaction and response to these wedding vows they're just so perfect and and i think it, it's just a great example of how he could interject that comedy, but still be very intimidating and live up to that title being the merciless. I mean, that, that sequence in and of itself, I, I if you were putting a Max von Sydow, like, I don't know, best of role together of his career, that's gotta be in there because that whole, that whole scene just cracks me up and he's so good in it. Yeah, we might I mean, get that. Cause didn't he die this year? So at the Academy Awards, won't they play like a little thing of like his, you think they'll All play Flash Gordon or no, no, The no, Exorcist? I think, or I think Flash Gordon might get left off. <laughs> uh, what about you, Brad? Was there were there any of the the creatures or or the things that made up this universe that stood out to you? No, I mean, I think they're all. I mean, the Hawkman, like, I don't know, is that where the Hawkman like? Isn't there a literal Hawkman like comic? DC. There's not. Yeah, a I mean, there is, Hawkman yeah, DC, is. Yeah, Hawkman yeah. is a DC. Hero. Yes, is I mean, is one influenced by the other because it literally looks like the exact same thing. Like, yeah, I was like, wait. So I, I don't know. 
I don't know anything about DC besides Super or Batman. And well, Superman. you know, I, I kind of went on a tangent about Ming, but the lizards is what struck me. Oh my God, yes. Oh, were their Those eyes are my are like... favorite. Yes. <laughs> I had to take, like, I actually rewound it. I was like, I couldn't tell if it was the the, the actual, the, the costume going over the face or if they had painted, like, put makeup to make it look like the lizard face. I had to go back and check. I was like, no, like, it is a very weird costume. And it struck me as odd. Even it's, like the, the pig, like, you know, stormtrooper is like odd looking too. Yeah. Yeah. The lizard men are my favorite, hands down my favorite. They're everywhere. They show up in a Raboria or the, the, the forest planet. Yeah. They get zapped by the, the robot in the beginning, but you're absolutely right, Josh, that costume for that is so unique where you get this big mouth with a fang and inside the mouth is a set of eyes and nose and another mouth. And they're, they're just big, wide, yeah. white eyes that, that stick out and, and, it's such an interesting visual. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it, and and the, the Hawkman. I mean, it it's it is exactly looking at a DC comic version of Hawkworld, and seeing those come to life. Now, the early comic strips in the 30s, 40s, etc. They had that character, and I don't know if DC borrowed that for you know their Justice League or or Hawkman series, but. When you look at Flash Gordon, you can't really think of the DC version without thinking of, you know, Brian Blessed in, in Flash Gordon or, or that whole thing. Well, um, the Hawkman, we've talked about uh, Sam Jones and now uh, in, in Ming and in uh, Max von Sydow and all that. If anybody in this movie is going for it, it's it's the the Hawkman guy. Oh, Brian, Brian Blessing. Brian Blessing he, is going. He is for going it. for it. He is fantastic in this. Um, I. <laughs> The thing that always strikes me as odd, and I, I guess we can talk about it now. So you said it, Brad, does Sam Jones deserve a, a nomination for worst actor for Flash Gordon? I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the dubbing or it's the script that got him there. But I feel like people like Brian Blessed, even Timothy Dalton, while he's there to collect a paycheck, I think he does a really good job. I love, uh, is it Melody Anderson? as Dale. I love Topol. I feel like there's all these interesting performances and characters and lizard men and Hawkmen. And right in the middle is Sam Jones, the most vanilla sort of boringish aspect of a film called Flash Gordon. And, yeah. and your guy named Flash Gordon isn't the He's most the least interesting, interesting character. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Dale Arden character kicks more butt than Flash Gordon does. Oh, I even found the princess. I found her strikingly like way more charismatic than almost anyone else in this movie. Um, she's going for it as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of agree with that nomination. Not that I don't enjoy Sam Jones as Flash Gordon. And again, I don't really put this on Sam Jones as an actor per se. When you go back and look at the history of the film and you see that, okay, originally the script, you know, Nicholas Rogue is, is creating this, uh, I don't know, very serious space opera and is trying to channel this very metaphysical take on 30s depression and humanity hurling themselves out to see, you know, what is God doing to their planet, that whole thing. And and Dino, you know, De Laurentiis in the back going, no, we need a more comedy. We we don't want, you know, <laughs> we got to drop this. Whoa, what is that accent? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, I, I just, I, I feel like with the the whole Flash Gordon thing, when the script came out, they didn't know what to do with that character, but everything around that character is so good 
and they just didn't do anything with with the hero. Well, it's it's one of those cases where uh, I'm sorry, Brad. I feel like I'm cutting you off. All no, the go time. ahead. If, no, if no, I am, no. <laughs> just tell me. Um, it's it's just one of those cases where you got you've got Conan the Bar the Barbarian, which was released right around the same time as this. Yeah. Um, you've got Schwarzenegger in that with very little dialogue, but bringing a lot of charisma to the role. What we've really got to ask ourselves about this whole Sam Jones fiasco in the dubbing and him leaving the production is, is would he have brought that pizzazz like Schwarzenegger did to Conan? Is it really the voice performance that ruins it? It's definitely something that stands out because I noticed it and I've only ever seen Sam Jones in one other thing. Um, so I, I knew instantly that that wasn't him and learning about all the stuff that happened in this production, it all makes sense now. But I don't know... I don't know if Sam Jones really would have brought much more to it than, than what he did. You know what I mean? I don't know what you think, Brad. I, you know, again, and I like what you guys are saying. A, he's like the least interesting character and B, I think he's like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like he was just kind of sleepwalking. Cause I don't know. Everyone else was carrying the heavy weight and he was just kind of able to skate by. I was just never really interested in flash Gordon. It sucks that, Flash Gordon is the worst part of Flash Gordon. <laughs> or, or are we supposed to take it literally that he's just a football player from New York in, I mean, in this in this universe? Like, it, it, would it really be any different than the way it plays out? Yeah. Um, it, 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 it leaves a lot of questions there. I, I guess. I, I think about that football. So <laughs> that football scene. That football scene, he ends up having this action sequence in the beginning to be fair he also improv that so like one of the best parts of the movie is just improvisation yeah it's fun and you got that music kicking in you got melody anderson cheering off to the side you've got all this stuff happening in the court it works and and it's a lot of fun but they should have that should have been the movie like that can't be like weird kind of like out of nowhere stupid stuff should have been played up more in this movie. And I think the the push and pull of we're trying to be kind of serious, but our actors don't know if we're trying to be serious, so they're trying to be funny. And then, no, we're trying to be funny, but they're trying to be serious. Like this not knowing and kind of walking that thin line of, of camp or serious and not choosing which one. There's definitely more story here than probably really needed to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean the the whole scientific thing with the the scientist and like yeah, like I'm can glad we talk brought, about can we talk about the rocket like why was I'm it glad you brought like two people uh, to be on this rocket like what are, <laughs> why did i have to put my foot on this pedal i still don't know i to this day it's like the g-forces what i don't know well that was the thing that struck me odd going into the you know watching this movie is this guy they've got this broadcast on the radio how he's this terrorist and he's got all these drastic ideas about things and he needs someone else to help fly the rocket. But we're supposed to buy into that. He's this crazy lunatic. And then by the end of it, you know, um, the girl's running around holding on to him. Like he's, he's part of the team, but they play him up in the beginning as this psychopath kind of character. It's like, wait a minute. Are, are we supposed to be rooting for this guy? Or is he part of the problem too? It's or very weird. Or maybe, this movie is foretelling that the uh, government will make a turn on scientists and make them out to be crazy people. Mm, dun, dun, mm. 
very <laughs> prophetic. Yeah, I don't. I think of Sam Jones, and I think of the so three sequences. I think of the football sequence. It's a lot of fun. I think of him and Timothy Dalton with the bull whips on oh, the on rotating the disc, platform. The disc of death. Yeah, which is fantastic. A uh, Beth death scene in the movie on that part too. Yeah, and then you get the Hawkman siege of the spacecraft and and everything that's going on with the explosions and them running around. And Sam Jones and all those sequences, Sam Jones at the helm of a spacecraft that's on fire, that's going into the, anytime there's action, Sam Jones is fantastic in this film. It's the stuff that happens in between his interactions with Dale, his interactions with the princess, even the sequence where Max wants, uh, is it Seedow Seedow is is got him on you know the Hawkman city and they they've evacuated everybody and he's offering you know hey do you want to take over earth we're going to do this sam jones just doesn't react at all he just kind of stands there and his you know shoulders up no nah, i don't want the offer and then yep. next thing you know action sequence happens and he's on the rocket bike so i really don't think sam jones necessarily is at fault for the lackluster performance in between the big dramatic action sequences I think the script just didn't give him anything to do. So all he is left to do is just kind of stare at all of the amazing things that are going on around him. Well, the movie just happens. He just happens to be in those places. So the movie yeah. just keeps going. He just happens to be in those places at that time. Yeah. He he, he honestly was on that space jet ski way too long. <laughs> um, I kept thinking throughout the entire closing closing of this movie i was like how long are they going to keep him on this on this thing because he he doesn't do much except stand on that space jet ski is what i continue to call it well he dies a lot or he almost dies a lot i mean the cool thing about this film he does die he does yeah (laughs) he they have so many of the serial cliffhangers sprinkled out throughout this whole thing which i really do appreciate from a callback perspective (laughs) Uh, because i mean it it, did you see how they they actually like promoted the film that way yes and, so and I, they would I love say like, aspect. will Flash Gordon, you know, be able to do this and then find out and in Flash Gordon, like it was a really cool way to like promote the film. Yeah. And, and I think it works for the story. I, the one death sequence I don't understand is he goes to the gas chamber. They put him in a coffin. Why is there a mirror in the coffin? He's dead. Why? why My why wife brought that up too. That is pretty strange. <laughs> oh, I've never noticed that. Is that yeah, just in case they bury you alive? You've got someone to talk to you. Oh my God. <laughs> you can talk to yourself. <laughs> well, the only reason why it's there is so that she can get a good look at him while he's changing clothes. But I don't understand the practicality of putting a mirror in the coffin to begin with outside of when you come back alive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's pretty um, strange. I, I, I loved it. Like when my wife brought it up, I just cackled. I was like, I don't know. It's funny. <laughs> I agree. What? So I got to ask you guys this: as much as I love everything about this ending, with the with the wedding vows and the visuals and everything else, and the ship coming in, and you got all these lasers, Flash and and Ming, their final confrontation. How did you feel about how the story, I guess, handles the big battle between Flash and Ming at the end? Well, it's ultimately anticlimactic because you they were planning on doing more movies. So it's like the end question mark and, you know, Ming has the laugh and you're like, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out other adventures of flash Gordon versus Ming later on 40 years later. We're still waiting. Part of me loves 
and this is coming from a first time viewing of this, but part of me loves that it ends the way it ends and we don't have closure on that. Um, maybe this is the older I get and liking ambiguity in my movies. Like I talked about David Lynch and you don't get everything explained to you or handed you on a silver platter. Like I almost invite that nowadays. If, if your movie leaves me wanting more, whether it's information or just, you know, action or adventure, um, I think there's something to be said for that. And I, and I, I won't go on this tangent, but the, 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 um, David Fincher girl with the dragon tattoo movie. Mm-hmm. I so want him to finish that series because I love what he did with that movie. I love that movie. And it's a shame that it went the way it did and he's not going to continue with that. But I almost also love because I love that that movie ends the way it does. And we're never going to see David Fincher finish that. It almost leaves this thing that where you could like, you could go, you could go back and watch that and it will continue to have you longing for something, you know? Um, so I, I kind of like that about, about flash Gordon is at the end. I, I know they've haven't done anything with this, with this, you know, franchise. I, I just, I laughed and I was like, that's great. I love that. I love the way that they <laughs> open like that. Kind of like I'm waiting for space balls to search for more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. I, I, I don't know. I'm torn on it. I guess it bothers me a little bit because of how Ming goes out. So Dude, he gets a, a spaceship runs. I know he gets impaled, but you start this credit sequence with all these comic strips. And I, I think in the beginning, you get this fantastic visual from the comic strip of Flash and, and Ming having like this sword duel. And, and Ming has just this, I don't know, omnipotent presence. And, you know, he's Ming the Merciless. And when it comes time for Flash and Ming to have their big showdown, it's Flash drives a spaceship through him. And then you get a VN question mark. It feels very anticlimactic, very anticlimactic. And I was hoping for a little bit more pomp and circumstance in terms of the final showdown between Flash. I mean, that that's where I'm so amped up with everything that's going on. You get this this fantastic battle sequence with the Hawkman taking over the ship, they're crashing the ship in the city, and then it's over. And I really feel it's it's an abrupt, I don't know, stop in comparison to what could have been from a movie perspective. Well, and that kind of is the downfall of this movie is they put the production above everything else. So they made this Ming the Merciless like costume. It weighed 60 pounds. So there's no way Max von Sydow is going to do any sort of action wearing this costume. So like you have to come to a conclusion like, okay, how are we going to kill this guy? He just has to stand there. So we're literally just going to crash a spaceship and he's going to get impaled. That's how he's going to go down because we have no way in hell that we're going to be able to move this guy around because he can barely stand wearing this costume. So they made I mean, that's... lizard men. They could have done anything, man. I wanted this <laughs> big action saying, showdown. I don't, want, I don't want like Jackie Chan action with Sam Jones flipping off the spaceship and doing, I, I just, I wanted something. But they were more worried about like how it was going to look and all this before like they thought about, Oh, but how is this going to work? You know, like, and I think that's basically the thesis of this movie is, it's going to look like this, but I don't know how it's going to work, but we'll figure it out. Okay. I, I, find, I find that to be a very interesting topic in making movies, period. Um, you can go into the MCU, and a lot of the complaints people had when they started making these comic book movies is you're killing off all of your villains that make continuous um, appearances throughout the universe in, in these stories. Um, you know, you're going to kill off 
Dr. Octopus, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. Uh, you write yourself into a corner when you, when you do that. And I can see why you would be upset that they kill off Ming in this, if they, especially if they were going to go into a, a whole franchise with it, 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 it would be, okay, well, who's the villain going to be now? And I don't know if there was a series of villains in Flash Gordon. I don't really know that much about the comic strip before the movie. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I see that in, in movies nowadays and, and it bothers me too, because I'm a big Venom fan in the, in the Spider-Man universe and what they did with Spider-Man three oh my uh, God. And, and killing and, and killing Venom off at the end of that. I was like, what are you doing? It, 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 you it, could ask a lot of what are you doing for that movie? <laughs> There's a lot of what are you doing on that one? I could, I could go, I, I could teach a college course on what they could have done to make Spider-Man three an amazing movie and made that franchise like Sam Raimi could have carried that franchise into, into now. How about but, not have Sandman? Can we go like not have Sandman? We're, we're going to, I'm okay. telling you guys, you're going to, you're going to get me talking for hours. So you might, okay. you don't want to go down that road. All right, well, we'll bring it back to the 1980s here. So I, I agree with you 100%. I just, they had a fantastic villain throughout the entire film. Nothing infuriates me more to have all these amazing set pieces and it's really ramping up in terms of action. And then all of a sudden you just, you get this very, I don't know, lackluster final showdown and, and it's just over. And then you go to your Star Wars ceremonial sequence and with everybody lined up and, Timothy Dalton giving his big speech, uh, and well, and you're. you're did they give Hawkman a medal? Did Hawkman get a medal in this, or did Chewie get a medal either? <laughs> I'm not sure. Hawkman well, got promoted. Well, Troy, let me let me ask you, Troy. What's more disappointing about it to you? The fact that they that they do kill off Ming in the end, and it's left the way, or is it the way they do it? Or is it the fact that they do it? You know what I mean? Like, would you I'm, have rather would it would have would it have pleased you more had he gone out with a bang? Or, or is it just that they killed him off, period? I would have been fine with them killing him off. I think one of the things that movies do wrong sometimes is when you get your arch nemesis or you get the antagonist and they, they do such a fantastic job throughout the entire film and then you get to the last portion, the, the showdown, right? Mm -hmm. And if the showdown isn't, if you don't feel like there's enough danger, there's enough stakes for that showdown, and all of a sudden the hero comes in and just vanquishes, you know, the main villain just with the snap of a finger. Oh, we're talking the Dark Knight Rises now, aren't we? <laughs> a, a little bit. I, I just, I, I really struggle sometimes with how we get to these to these type of sequences where it just feels like they either ran out of money or ideas. And said we have to wrap this up rather quickly yeah. when i as an audience member are sitting there for like an hour and a half and i'm totally invested into into everybody and everything that's going on and i you know in this case he's, he's got flash gordon's girl there he's, he's going to marry her he's got his entire entourage and army there flash gordon you know crashes the ship in, and the next thing you know it's just over ming is disposed of I thought that was very disingenuous to everything they built up to the Ming the Merciless character in general. Yeah. As prolific of a filmmaker as Christopher Nolan is, this is where I, I have trouble with him and it's the dark Knight rises and Bane and Batman. And that like, you've spent this entire movie pinning Batman against Bane. And then to have Bane go out with a 
with a with a bullet per se from Catwoman. That is not what I wanted to see. Yeah, you you didn't. They did not throw enough punches with each other. It was not as epic as it, it was. Not the Joker on top of the the church. It was not. We can even talk about how disappointing it is that they, that they left the Dark Knight open like they did, but they couldn't have anticipated what happened there. I get that. Right. Um, but to do what they did with Bane is the same. It's the same comparison you're making here. It's like, it's a little lackluster. You want more out of it. I get it. I get what you're saying. It's got that sword, right? That big golden sword. But yeah, do there's nothing with it. With it. it, it just never gets it used. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You're hoping. I mean, he, he, he holds his ring up. And it's his all-powerful ring. His power's fading. He's sitting there with the sword. But at the end of the day, nothing happens. And, and like I said, there's so much buildup to this film. And I, I I don't know. I had so much fun watching this. I don't know, for the whatever upteenth time. It, to the point where when I sat down and I'm, I'm watching it with my son and I just start quoting it right out of the gate. It's Clytus. I'm bored. <laughs> Cameron's like, you going to do that through the whole thing? No, I'm good. I just, we're ready to go. And you're having so much fun with these characters and everything that's going on. And it really just feels, it just feels like they ran out of film. They ran out of production, whatever it was, somebody called lunch that day. And they're like, well, I, that's it. Right. Christmas around the corner. We're kind of done. And this is the problem with franchises. And you guys probably know this more than anything is when you have your three film deal that you're planning, if, if you're going to get out of the gates you have to have a very satisfying first film it can't yeah. just end and you go well, we're going to pick it up in the second one you, you've got to have closure and you got to have something that goes wow that when you leave the theater what do you remember you you kind of remember the last part of the film probably more so than the film itself i think sometimes so it's a lot of times i leave a film and if the ending just didn't do it for me no matter how good the other hour and a half or two hours before if the last 10 or 15 minutes just don't set well with me it takes me a little bit to kind of get my arms around that film and go well i really liked it because i'm leaving the theater just dissatisfied yeah which is weird because like i just rewatched lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring and that's like obviously the first book and we know that there's you know even when it came out we knew there's two other movies that movie even ends kind of with a satisfying ending. Yeah. I mean, you, you left the theater feeling, okay, like I know there's more, but if this was the only movie I ever saw with Lord of the Rings, like I'd be satisfied. Um, so it's weird that like, yeah, you're right. Like you have to feel like any movie you're seeing, regardless if there's one film coming after it, no films or 20, that it's satisfying at that point in time for what you just sat through. Star Wars is as a great end. I mean, Darth Vader lives. He's his TIE fighters flying off in there. But if they never made another Star Wars film, it would be a great film simply because on its whole, you, you've got these fantastic sequences leading up to the Death Star sequence. And the Death Star sequence is everything that that movie promises it to be. And when you leave the theater after Star Wars, you want to go fly X-Wings and, and you remember, you, you just leave on such a high note. With Flash Gordon, you you leave on a oh that was it that i mean why didn't they just ram a spaceship in front of him at the beginning of the film i don't know i mean why did anybody else think of that Let, let's broach this question okay uh empire strikes back came out the same year let's just say for argument's sake that the downside ending turned people off 
people didn't buy into it or people were so upset with the way it ended that they did not support the movie or the, the word of mouth was so bad that it ended the way it did. Would it like, would we hold empire in as such a regard as we do if it hadn't have been the hit it was like, would we, would we, would, would we be satisfied with the ending of empire strikes back? Like that's part of the reason I love that movie is because it ends on a down note, but would I be happy with that film or that franchise, if that's the way it left me hanging or would so, I be upset about it? it? It's interesting you bring that back. I think a lot of people forget that when Empire Strikes Back came out, a lot of people did not like the ending. So Empire but Strikes they Back. they knew they were going to get another movie. They to knew they were up. getting another movie, but everybody left the theater very upset the way it ended. Because if you go back and look at the reviews in 80 and how people were dissecting it, I think it took a while for people to catch up. Meaning my theory is empire strikes back gained much more acceptance after return of the Jedi. But in 1980, when empire strikes came back or empire came out after star Wars, I don't think a lot of people thought of that ending as satisfying until you get done with your trilogy. Well, you're also, you're, you're, you're glossing over the revelation about Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. So you're like, you got that. Yes. But, so, but that's where I, where I was going to go is, but Empire, the thing that it does right is as a film, as a narrative and as a story, it, it goes from its start to finish and it tells the story it wants to tell. So you get, you know, the, re the revelation about the father, son, you, you have all these stakes um, really presented in front of you. And at the end of the day, the bad guys win, but yeah. it goes through its story arc. And in, and I think what's brilliant about that film is in any other film, it would be, you go through all this stuff and the good guys win movies over. Right. But you get a full complete narrative empire strikes back. You go through it. You get a full complete narrative. Bad guys win. It's still on its own, a complete narrative flash Gordon doesn't feel like a complete narrative when you get to the end of the film. Yeah, because I mean, what do you really know about Flash in this movie at the end of it? Nothing. That he's a that he's a football player. He doesn't change at all throughout the film. No, that's one of his problems. Is he's the same guy at the beginning of the movie as he is at the end. He's still kind of naive and and, just, and, and it's like oh gosh kind of thing. Let me know if this just went in like went right past me, but he met her. Uh, what's her name? Um, Dale, 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 the, Dale he, the, he <laughs> met Dale on this plane. And by the end of the movie, they're marrying each other. Am I wrong in assuming that he has, he says he wants to have kids with her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, you have not given me anything to make me believe that this is what would the outcome of this would be. And but, also they have zero chemistry. He and the princess yeah. uh, Aurora, maybe yeah. I think yeah. they have like, yeah, they are trying to well, like, Princess Aurora and Dale have more chemistry than well, yeah. anybody that together just with fight, their pillow man. fight. Okay. <laughs> anybody on screen has more chemistry than whoever's with Flash, yeah. basically. That's true. No, you're, you're absolutely right. If you really think about it, it's Princess uh, Aurora, Aurora and um, Prince Baron who end up going through sort of some transformational character art through the entire film. And even Brian Blessed's character as Prince Voltan, it, again, it goes back to my original premise that everything around Flash Gordon has a traditional story arc. Everybody mm -hmm. goes through change. Flash Gordon is just Flash Gordon. He just reacts to everything. And I, I, I can't say this enough. I don't blame Sam Jones on that as much as the script because going into this film, the script was, you know, 18 different ideas yeah. going all in different directions. And they landed on this. And this is what they got. 
I mean, even a character like Clytus is a hundred times more fascinating than Flash Gordon. Oh yeah, I'm more enamored with him or or anybody else in the movie than I am Flash. Um, I mean, and and you can't say that they didn't build character because I mean, that that dude had character. The hawk, the hawk people. I mean, they give you more with Dale and the princess than they do with anything with Flash. Um, So I mean, it's not that like I know more about those characters than I do about Flash in this movie. It's true. Yeah, you know, Voltaine has a daughter right in the beginning, and that's why he chooses to do what he does to protect his daughter. Yeah. So again, I, I I think Sam Jones did the best that he could given the material to be Flash Gordon, and from all of the action sequences and all of the, the physicality portions of it, he hits at A plus. But everything that's happening in between the action, you know, Flash yeah. isn't so flashy. I guess everybody else is great. Sam Jones, not so good. Right. I, I, that's a really good question about Empire Strikes Back. I, the, the more <laughs> that I think about it, a little bit, huh? No, no it's, it's, it's no, it's fine. Like the good guys went after the first one, the bad guys went after the second one. I mean, it's just how it is. It, it is, but I, I find that so interesting because I feel like Flash Gordon is chasing Star Wars, right? Oh, absolutely. It's chasing the first Star Wars film. But at Star- ludicrous speed, <laughs> yeah, at ludicrous speed. But Star Wars, and I think the audience of 1980 at that time had graduated to a more mature space opera. And so, when the Empire Strikes Back comes out in May, and the audience gets a hold of this and goes, "Holy cow!" I'm taking the same story structure and everything else, and maybe advancing it with a just better acting, better special effects, but more importantly, a script that is fully flushed out and has an ending that you didn't see coming, but it still has a satisfying ending, even though the bad guys win. Then Flash Also, Gordon- we got two hours previous to that, too. A New Hope had come out, so we had already mm-hmm. kind of marinated with these characters as well. Yeah, absolutely. But then Flash Gordon comes out and says, you know, hey, we're trying to capture the magic of Star Wars. Everybody else is like, yeah, we're past that, bud. I mean, even, even Buck Rogers, I, I talked about this. Flash Gordon, the comic strip, was a response to Buck Rogers. So when Flash Gordon came out in 1980, you've got the Buck Rogers TV show playing from like 79 to I think 81 or 80. So that series had started before this film. And even the Buck Rogers TV show, they took the pilot and put it in the theater and it had a theatrical run at that time period. So Flash Gordon is coming out after Star Wars and Buck Rogers. So it it's not adding anything new. So to- what you're saying is... Flash Gordon is to the eighties what DC movies are to now. Yes. Okay. That, that's a great just, analogy. Just wanted to make sure we're really on the same good. page there. <laughs> you nailed it. Jeff. Gee, um, you dropped the mic. Once I mean, they again. are trying. They did try to like, you know, pigeonhole a lot of like mythos into one movie like really quick. Yeah. Now, now listen. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to lose fans by saying bad things about DC. I have a lot of people that I know that love DC comics and a lot of the characters that come along with that, and they will defend, you know, the DC stuff to the end. They just don't. I feel like it's too sloppy. I, I don't feel like they had a good grasp on what they wanted to do, and Marvel did, and it just so happens that it happened the way it happened, you know. Um, but I, I just don't find the DC movies as entertaining, you know. I agree. I mean, I actually, I like the people they're putting in front of the camera. I like some of the directorial choices and the screenwriters are adding to it. But the biggest difference between them is, is Marvel has a clear vision and plan of, of what they're doing. DC, I don't think has figured that out yet. And I think your 
observation is spot on with Flash Gordon in that looking at all the stories leading up to Flash Gordon, nobody knew what they were. Even if it did pretty good and they were going to do a sequel, who knows what the sequel would be like because there wasn't a clear vision to it. All they said was, we've got a contract to do three more films, but they didn't even know really what they wanted to do with the first film. Yeah. So in, in my head, when I look at this film and I look at everything that led up to it, I can't see how it did as well as it did, even though it didn't really do that well. Because if you, if you look at it from a financials perspective, nobody thought this did really that great. And in 1980, it wasn't just a slam bang hit critically or anything else. I think that Ebert and uh, Siskel review is probably how everybody interpreted it back in 1980 and said, yeah, we're about 50, 50 on it. Now, personally, yeah. I love it and I have so much fun with this film but I don't know how you guys feel. I mean, just talking about it for you know the last hour or so, it's clear to me that this was going to be a bomb in 1980 in comparison to everything else that was going on and how they handled this from a production standpoint. Yeah, I don't want to lose sight. Like at the 85 minute mark, when that Queen song hits again and he's riding that rocket sled and it's like they're going after Ajax, the, the ship and all that stuff till pretty much the end of the movie. Like it rocks. Like it is awesome. The oh last God, half yeah. an hour, last 35 minutes is amazing. It's so much fun. Like it is why you watch movies because it's just ridiculous. It's fun and it like just goes. And you have like Queen, like just Eddie is just like rocking out. It is so great. I don't want to lose sight of that. Like, yes, it's got flaws. Yes, Ming is a date rapist in this movie. Let's not lose sight of that either. <laughs> like he is date raping people, but it is still a great movie and it's a lot of fun. And there's Hitler stuff in it. You're like, what? <laughs> I, I so, mean, as, as a first watch and and never and not having any nostalgia for this movie whatsoever, I would definitely see myself watching it again. If anything, just to sit down with some friends and watch it and kind of have a commentary that always, that always improves a film, even if it's a bad one. I mean, that's the reason why movies like the room are, are what they are is because people get in a room together and watch it. And it becomes, it builds this momentum about being such a bad movie that you just fall in love with it. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I think flash Gordon has more value than the room does to be completely honest with you. Absolutely. I, but I, I, I love the room all the same. Um, it's just the company I keep because we all talk about the room all the time. Uh, but I mean, flash Gordon I, with, with it not being part of my pop culture growing up, I still can respect what it is and what they tried to do with it. And I, a lot of that might have to do with the fact that the 4k looks so good. Like I'm going to watch it again, just for the fact that the picture is so good on it. I, I've never seen a movie from the eighties look so good on, on a, on a television. So, um, but I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't say I hated this movie. Now we can talk about Highlander, which I never saw as a kid and watched as an adult for the first time two years ago. And I've got some thoughts on that movie, but we'll leave that for another show. <laughs> yeah. Now I, Brad, you, you talk about that last 30 minutes, this new release, it, I think it still has the 5.1 DTS soundtrack carryover that they were using on like previous blues. But that last 30 minutes, when they're having that big battle on the Ajax rocket ship, that guitar solo is going just crazy. I crank the sound system up. I, I this The only thing I'm really upset about this release is there's no Dolby Atmos soundtrack. 
of all the films that I had watched this year that I am begging for them to go back. If you want me to buy this film again, just release this, this 4k and go back and put it in Dolby Atmos. I I will, I will love you studio canal and arrow um, forever. But even with the 5.1 soundtrack, it sounds fantastic. And, and the queen, I think it goes back to it. The, the queen soundtrack and the music throughout this film amps up the action to a whole new level and it makes it so much fun. Um, so I, even though I complain about how it ends because I, I was having just this fists in the air, go flash, go moment with, you know, the Hawkmen and, and them really sort of taking on Ming in the city, how it ends. I'm just like, Oh, I feel a little deflated. But then as soon as that queen music kicks in for the credits, I, I you just fall in love with it again. I have a question. Okay. Here's my, here's my uh, thought. So so what is the main uh, problem that the earth is having for this film? The moon is moving towards the earth, right? Uh, yes. Okay. So they have a timer. Three minutes. Right? Three minutes. So that means that the moon is going to collide with the earth in three minutes. Just think about that for a second. <laughs> What's, I thought we've already the moon, established. The moon is three <laughs> minutes away from the earth. In, in terms. And actually, it's like one second away from the earth. And yeah. actually those timers never line up to real time. Cause it's like, it was 17 seconds and literally he and Ming had that scene for like three minutes. And I'm like, uh, I don't think so. I'll right? be completely honest with you, Brad. <laughs> At the end of this, I wasn't quite sure if the earth was saved or not. Yeah. They, <laughs> and they never go, not you never, you never not like I, the earth, save? the robot came out and said, flash, you saved earth. So therefore maybe he's just saying that. So I they don't. Just, they disintegrated the moon, and it didn't collide with Earth. Now we have no moon. No tides. No, we have no tides. I can't yeah. go surfing. I don't know how science. Either works. way, Earth they is said toast. It's saved. Yeah. I'm gonna believe it. I don't know how the moon and Earth thing work. It maybe at the three minute mark, it just goes right back to where it was, and oh. it's no big deal. Yeah, because gravity. That's how gravity works, Troy. The Earth is okay. I'm not getting into it. Earth um, is flat. If I were to drop something, it it hits the floor r- rather quick. That's gravity, up. right? So the moon's <laughs> got to go back just as fast. Okay, That's I want to I want to mention one more thing before I forget. Okay, Clytus' death is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. When uh, his eyes bulge out of his mask and his tongue sticks out, I I still to this day I knew it was coming, and it still gets me every time. And Peter Weingard did not want to die. He was so upset yeah. that the Clytus character was because he wanted to come off. back. Yeah, I was honestly more upset that he died the way he died than Ming, honestly, because I, I like what happens to him. And I like the fact that he melts away, uh, got, you know, Wicked Witch vibes there. But I was just disappointed that he was you know, like he kind of went out a little lackluster, in my opinion. Like we've talked about this. There's not a whole lot of decent bat like hand to hand combat battle between anybody in this. You know, all all get, the villains did. I mean, the the Clytus's um, side chick, she just gets shot, right? I mean, yeah. it, all of the villains go out in, in truly just horrible. It's it's over like that, right? And, you, you get more hand-to-hand combat out of allies in the end of this movie because you see more physical altercations between Timothy Dalton and Flash in this than you do between Ming or the other guy. Like, Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> It's crazy. Oh, I, I do one other thing. We, we did talk about creatures, and I, I want to put this out there because I don't know if you guys have this fear now after watching this. So watching this as a kid, they they have on the uh, Dagobah planet, since we're calling it that, 
this creature that oh the tree stump is in the tree stump and so they have this whole uh, what what's it called the test of manhood right so you've got this this creature in the tree stump put your hand in there and then if it bites you then you go crazy and they lop off your head so you don't go crazy to this day every time i see that sequence it freaks me out and if i'm hiking or something and i see those tree stumps where you can put your hands in there you're gonna do it never see me do that for fear of there being some scorpion squishy thing tail that would like poke me and all of a sudden i start bleeding green hey josh on your little soundboard you got like a tarantino sound like some feet or something like that (laughs) no i don't okay well troy do you want to play our game Yes, so I am curious because I was able to get the uh, uh, the the Max, you know, in there for Rush Hour Three and get my Jackie Chan. And so, yep. how does this relate to anything Tarantino? So, <clears throat> according to uh, Robert Rodriguez, when Tarantino was learning how to write um, screenplays and write scenes out, he would watch films, take scenes that he uh, saw, and then kind of make them into more elaborate, longer scenes. Uh, Gee, one of his, think? yeah, I know. Right. Right. <laughs> really? So it's weird. One of the scenes that he uses is that tree stump scene. He, he used that made it into a longer scene to learn how to uh, write and set up, you know, scripts. So huh. no kid. Yeah. That's according to Robert Rodriguez. So take it as I, you will. I say that very lovingly, by the way, because I'm a massive Tarantino fan. Yeah. Cause but. you're a smart guy. but i you know a a lot of people don't like him for the fact that he quote unquote rips people off but you know watching glorious bastards and tell me he's not a one of the best film filmmakers of all time so you know pulp fiction has been my favorite tarantino film for a long time but i'm starting to think inglorious bastards is getting close to edging it out the more i watch that movie which i never never thought i would be watching that one over and over again the first time i saw it but I, the more I, I watch Inglorious Bastards, the more I fall in love with that movie. I, I'm with you. I, but between that, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, I I pick a day and I'll choose which is number one. Those are my three favorite. Love I, them all. I have to, I, Jackie Brown is low on my on my list for that. I just never dedicated the time to watching it as much as I have the other ones. But I, I definitely need to go back and watch Jackie Chan a couple more. Or not Jackie yes. Chan. <laughs> you yes, guys you have gotten me brainwashed Jackie, Jackie Chan. <laughs> Jackie exactly. Chan, Jet Li. Um, but uh, Jackie Brown is one that I have not spent enough time with at all. And I do need to go back and spend some time with that one. Awesome. Well, what else about Flash Gordon from 1980? Uh, are we ready to just ask the, the question that the podcast is based on? Well, I also like it when you trick somebody, when you yell out, tricked you. I love it. I love it because he <laughs> literally does that. He goes, tricked you. I'm like, oh my God, that's so amateurish. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry over a little <laughs> segment that we do on our show, Almost Famous. I kind of had an Almost Famous pick in here. As we're watching and they're going through and they're doing the battle on the tree planet and all that, um, I, I couldn't help but notice the bald guy who they plant in the thing with Flash is Riff Raff. From Richard O'Brien, yeah. From uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, he like, has a little uh, cameo in that. I totally forgot to add that to the list, but yeah, it's um, he he doesn't have a lot to do here. He has a couple of lines. They stick him in there to trick Flash Gordon uh, to to try and escape. But yeah, you've got a little Rocky Horror Picture Show callback, which I, I, makes I, sense since this was filmed over in the UK. Oh yeah, I had to take a double take. I was like, is that the guy? And I, you know, of course, we jump on the phone and Wikipedia it. 
What did we do before we had Google and Wikipedia, guys? We lied. Yeah. <laughs> or or checked our star log magazines or yeah, fanzines and stuff like that. <laughs> you show me your crazy. He had a crazy. Do you, have, you ever heard of crazy magazine, Josh? I don't think so. Yeah, so it was like the reject Marvel, Mad Magazine. Yeah, Marvel tried to, you know, cash in on Mad Magazine and cracked, etc. So Marvel had their version of everything called Crazy. Huh. And um, the other, it's the only magazine I own of that series. And I have the Flash Gordon one. Wow. So it has Ming on there and Flash is shaving him and, and the whole tagline instead of, you know, who will save you now, it's who will shave you now. But you, you can find that. I, I had to pull out my my Flash Gordon magazines because I have the Star Log uh, with Ming on the cover and the interviews with Sam Jones and um, the Crazy Magazine where they did a parody of Flash Gordon. Wow. No, I had never heard of that. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's get to this thing. I, I, I think we talked a lot about it. Um, I'm pretty sure I know where Brad's going to land, but I'm going to start with you, Josh. So this one limped across the finish line, didn't make the money that they wanted. Obviously, no sequels came out of it. We're going to say that from a review standpoint, we'll, we'll go with the uh, Roger Ebert, um, Gene Siskel, 50-50. You know, we'll, we'll call it 50% approval back in 1980. But from your opinion, taking a look at Flash Gordon, it's your first time watch. Do you think Flash Gordon is a bomb? Uh, I, I would have to go, yeah. I mean... I don't think it lived up to what it was promising. I don't think it really lived up to what anybody thought it was going to at the time. It doesn't mean you can't love it and have nostalgia for it. Um, but for what they were aiming to do with the character, with a franchise and whatnot, I'd say, yeah, you're, you're looking at bomb material here. Okay. Okay. Good take. Brad, this is your pick. What do you think? Is Flash uh, Gordon a bomb? Absolutely not. This is not a bomb. Not a bomb Like whatsoever. I said. Even if you just want to like feel good, watch the last 35 minutes and I guarantee you'll be in a better mood. I'm going to have to side on Brad with Brad on this one. I, even though I have a major problem with Ming at the end, because uh, I love him so much through the film, everything about this film is just a visual feast for the eyes. And I have a lot of fun with it. I mean, at the end of the day, my two biggest problems are they didn't give Sam Jones enough from a script to do anything when he wasn't doing the action sequences and uh, all the villains, you know, Clytus Ming, everybody just go out like a punk. And, and I really wanted a more elaborate uh, death scene or something, but put those aside, everything else about this film is so much fun. And even when I saw it back in 1980, loved it as a kid. I love it now. I love this. You, see this in the theater? you saw this in the theater. Yeah. I saw it in the theater. Yeah. I mean, nice. Empire Strikes Back this 80s heck yeah and I I can honestly tell you it's now seeing this 4k I really would love to see it um, in one of the older theaters out here like the Parkway or the AFI in Silver Springs because you get a good um, print of this on the big screen I can't imagine what it would look like uh, you know with an audience too I, I and have that Queen soundtrack just being you know pumped through all the speakers I think that'd be a fantastic experience but I'm I'm gonna put it in the camp that it's not a bomb. I I brought up Rocky Horror Picture Show, and this in a lot of ways could compare to that for me, and and, and not just the way I brought up with the actor. I, when I was a kid, Rocky Horror Picture Show was beyond me. Uh, the, I remember the first time I saw it, I did not know what was going on. And to be fair, I'm 40 years old now, and I still don't know what's going on in Rocky Horror. But <laughs> I, 
how much co- gr- how much cocaine you got? <laughs> <laughs> I have grown to love that movie over the years, though. There's just something about it that the more I watch it, the more I fall in love with it. I could see Flash falling into that category for me. Um, this is another thing we talk about on our podcast a lot is is your nostalgia for things tends to overrule when you're talking about, you know, opinions vary, to yeah. quote Roadhouse. Right. Um, uh, if you didn't grow up with it, it's harder to accept. Like if you've watched this movie multiple times, if you have fond memories of going to the theater and seeing it, things of that, it's, it's automatically going to register higher for you than it would be for someone who just saw it two days ago. Um, doesn't mean, you know, I might've liked it. I might've not liked it. It could have gone either way. Um, but when you have nostalgia for something, we just talked about this on our Conan episode. I have so much nostalgia for that movie. You could never tell me it's a bad movie, but my wife just does not understand why I hold it in such a high regard. She didn't see it the way I saw it when I was four years old, you know? Yeah, no. And I, I, I think that's a great observation. I would be the first to tell you that there, I could tell you all the movies that I'm blinded by nostalgia. And if you were to say, Hey, put your critical, uh, you know, perspective on it, I would go, that's a really dumb film. It doesn't work uh, even from a storytelling perspective. So I, I totally get that flash for me is one of those that I can appreciate everything that went into it from a visual perspective uh, from the art direction, the production, um, just the special effects of the design and for what it did in trying to capture, you know, the flash Gordon serials from, you know, the forties, fifties that they were doing. I think it, it does a great job at that. And even though it, it has some problems. So this, this kind of film, I really like because it's one of those where I can be nostalgic about it, but then come back and look at it critically and go, yeah, I, I can still appreciate all of these things um, on a critical level that went into this film. Whereas, and this is one of my favorite films because of that. Whereas there's a lot of other films where I go, you know, let's face it, Enter the Ninja Revenge, all the show Kasugi films from the 80s. They're oh. just, they're not good films in terms of good filmmaking, but I love them. I Ninja know 3, you... the domination stuff. Whoa, but... you watch out. Yeah, I, but I they're, they're just not, they're, you know, from a, <laughs> from a cinematic perspective, they're not good films, but I still love them. Yeah, um, like I know you guys love Jet Li and, and, and Jackie oh yeah. Chan. Um, I'm sorry, guys, not the biggest fan of, of, of either of them, um, but I could talk Shokasugi movies all day long with you. Yeah. Those were the ones, like I was watching those just gritty ninja movies as a kid. That's what I flocked to, that and horror movies. And Shokasugi was like, I, I hold him in very high regard as far as 80s movies goes. Yeah, I, I pray for death. I mean, it has a fantastic blue on it. And yeah. it it's such a fun movie to watch. But when I look at it critically, it falls out of that camp for me. Whereas Flash Gordon, I can, I can go nostalgia-wise, it hits all the cylinders. And then... Yeah from a filmmaking perspective, I can really praise this thing on those levels where I can't do that with Shokasugi, but I still love uh, Shokasugi. Flash, <laughs> Flash Gordon is more glitzy and, and fun as opposed to like those ninja movies are dark. Yeah. As cheesy as they can get, they're dark and they have dark subject matter. I mean, Ninja 3, The Domination is, is the exorcist and a ninja movie combined. So, I mean, they went to some crazy places with those, but I think that's yeah, why did. I love them. I, I, I yeah, honestly think that's why I like them as much as I do is because they're just weird. Yeah, no, I agree. 100%. Um, 
Man, that was a great discussion. So next week is my pick. So Brad, you kicked off your pick with your home media release. I did mine from a theatrical. So next week I'm doing my home media release for, for this year. And I'm going to go back to the beginning of the year, right around COVID time. So this came out from Arrow Video on April 20th. And the film is actually from 2018. And it's a Russian film. It didn't get a theatrical release over here. And I think we'll talk about this next week. It really didn't get much of a release even in its own country. But this was a film that I'd read an article about. And as soon as I saw Arrow was putting it out there, it was a blind buy sort of pre-order. And when it hit and I looked at the cover and read what the movie was about, never saw a trailer, just read this article about how good it was. And I, I think it was from one of the New York film festivals in 2019. I put it in, sat down and instantly fell in love with it. So next week for Not a Bomb, we're going to tackle 2018's Why Don't You Just Die? Have you guys heard about this film? I have, I have no idea. I haven't either. Oh, it's, I can't wait to talk about this. And Brad, uh, if, if you look at this film and how they try and sell it, especially Arrow put it all over the back of the Blu-ray release, there's a couple of names that show up on there. And one in particular, I think is going to interest you. And that's Quentin Tarantino. So a lot of people compare this to like early Quentin Tarantino. Okay. Well, I know nothing and I'm not going to watch anything about it or read anything about it. I'm just going to watch it. So, well, I mean, for collectors of, of physical media, I mean, you, I have bought so many blind buys from arrow and scream factory, Kino Lorber, um, all those production companies that are, are revitalizing these older movies and, and, and doing better, you know, making them look a lot better and releasing special Blu-rays and stuff like just for the picture quality alone, sometimes I'll go with those releases. I just love when a company will take the time to, to make something so much better than it was before. And Arrow does a really good job with that. Yeah, this is why I love Arrow to take a film that I've never heard of, maybe just in one like film festival article and to do a big release like that. I, I was so excited to discover it. I, I always get super excited about discovering a film that was just not on my radar. As soon as it hits, then it becomes something I can re recommend to everybody. So I'm really excited for for this pick. And and when we talk about you know 2020 and what a crazy year it's been, this is one that just kind of flew on the radar. I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, even in the film circles that I hang with. Um, so I was excited when we were talking about December. It's like, hey, if if I get to pick a couple of bombs of 2020, this was definitely on my list. And then um, obviously we talked about Mulan last week. So um, Josh, real quick, I, I had so much fun talking yeah. Flash Gordon with you and, and DC and Star Wars. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, VHS Files is, I, I can't say this enough. When I'm listening to it, I really feel like I'm just walking the video aisles with um, you and the gang. But for anybody who wants to check your show out, how do they find you? How do they get in contact with you? How about you share with our listeners all your information? Uh, well, you can find us on any of the social media outlets at VHS Files Podcast. Um, we release a new episode every Friday is our schedule right now. Uh, we're in the middle of Christmas season at the moment. So we just released our Gremlins episode. We did our Christmas vacation episode before that. And this week we'll be releasing our Scrooged episode. Um, 
And so, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we just have a love for movies. We like the old video store vibe. That's why you've seen uh, Jason and I will do our little horror section uh, sub shows. We just kind of want to bring back that feeling of hanging out at the video store and talking about the movies that you, that you saw. And uh, we, you know, once we get past our introduction of all of our, you know, movies that made us, uh, we really just want to get into that whole vibe of, dude, I saw this movie the other night. And if you haven't seen this, holy crap, you got to see it. Like, that's what's exciting to us is that whole camaraderie of you thought this film was great. Well, I'm going to check it out. Okay. Let's talk about it. Why did you like it? Why do I like it? Why did I think it sucked? Um, that's, that's our whole vibe. We just want to kind of bring you back to that whole video store feel. So, uh, you know, you may see us start talking about, you know, uh, we may have a, co a comedy section, uh, sub show and you know my wife and i might do romantic comedies so we just it might not be something that all of us are into but maybe me and my wife want to talk about a specific movie or me and jason or me and eric so those are our little sub shows we can just tape and throw out there whenever we want to and but we will always have a friday episode for for everybody with a movie of the week that's all four of us talking about usually something that just drew us to film as kids and uh, yeah i mean at vhs files podcast uh, on the social medias and every Friday, uh, wherever you get your podcast, you can find us. That's yeah. Awesome, I, I, I always appreciate podcasts that release on the same day every week because you kind of anticipate them coming out. So it's um, been tough, especially with editing. I'm yeah. sure you guys know. Yeah, you do a lot goes. of, you do a lot of more post-production than, than, than Troy and I do. So I, we appreciate that, you know, yours is, it sounds differently than ours and that's you know on purpose but you know. a lot of what we do we do live um just because I, i've got the capacity to do it here a lot of the sound cues you'll hear us do and whatnot we actually do live on the show and if for some reason something doesn't sound good or whatnot i'll go in and tweak that but um yeah we've, we've gotten pretty fortunate in being able to kind of build a little sound bank of things that we like to use and pull clips and things like that and it just gives us a little more things to have commentary on um, and little segments where we talk about, as I said, almost famous, like finding those little niche characters in movies and pointing them out and, um, you know, our favorite quotes from movies and what we thought was good and bad and ugly about movies. So that's, you know, just it, it's, it's just like sitting in a room with your friends, just like we're doing right now. We're not in a room together, but we're all just talking about the nerdy things we like to talk about when it comes to movies. It, it's a fun listen. I, I encourage everybody to check it out. Brad, um, we got some amazing emails from Chris and Ben. Guys, thank you for writing in. Captain thank you America those... freaking wrote us an email. I know. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, and the questions were fantastic. We love this type of interaction. Brad, if anybody wants to reach out to us and tell us their favorite movie bomb we should review or give us their opinion of Flash Gordon and let us know if we're right or wrong, how do they reach out to us? Uh, on socials, it's uh, not a bomb pod. Um, our Gmail account is um, not a bomb podcast at gmail.com website, not a bomb podcast.com. Um, if you want to use the contact us button, um, that's an easy way to leave suggestions and feedback as well. Um, hey, if you like our show and you like Josh's show, go leave us a review um, or yes. do what we do and, you know, share it. Um, tell someone else about it. Um, you know, we kind of just stumbled upon Josh's show and started listening. And I've told people, Hey, check this out. And, you know, I know he's done the same for us. So that's kind of the biggest help you can do because, you know, we aren't huge and uh, you want to keep getting bigger. You want your 
work to be heard by people. Um, so the best thing don't, you can do is just don't be afraid to reach out. That's exactly what I did when I, yeah. whenever I saw you guys and I heard about your show and I listened to it, I just reached out to you. Um, if you, if you have a common, you know, thing that you, that you like, and you're talking about never, never, you know, don't, don't hesitate to reach out and ask because you never know what'll happen. I'm yeah, on, I'm on the not a bomb podcast right now. So. It turns out Josh is not a murderer so far. <laughs> so far. That was a happy surprise. Yeah. Um, no, that's what our favorite thing we, we continually talk about is just the film community we build up just from doing these shows and interacting with everybody. And we've had, uh, you know, a lot of good luck in meeting some amazing people. Josh, it's, it's so fun to add you to that list. And I can't wait to have you on again. Thank you. And talk about the next bomb. Um, I, I just so fortunate for everybody to download us. And, and like Brad said, you know, share us. We don't get a lot of love at home. Obviously, the the wedding vows that you know <laughs> Ming read out those those were the ones that were read to me, and I had to agree. So at any point in time, my wife is going to jettison me in space. So if you want to leave a review on iTunes or something and and tell us we're actually doing a pretty good job, that helps. But uh, yeah, just keep interacting with those folks. We love it. Send in your questions, and next week, if you're playing along, try and watch. Why don't you just die? If you're going to watch it, I strongly encourage you stay away from all the trailers, go into this thing blind and, and have fun with it. It's, it's an interesting film. Brad, Josh, anything else? It's all for me. All Death right. to Ming. Death to Ming. Okay. Don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. I hope your day's going awesome. And we will be talking with you next week for Why Don't You Just Die? from 2018 so thanks folks have an awesome day thank you and have a nice day thanks for having me guys